Hey, everybody. This is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman back for the 153rd Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom call. We're glad to have you with us, even though we're in the midst of a horrible, horrible war, which is about to change global policy. I just actually read an astonishing piece about the Middle East situation, which I will try and post in the chat. Um, this is uh, more than just a regional war. This is uh, a change in global power. And I'll leave you with this thought before we proceed, which is that the Chinese have decided that in the future, they're going to do business with the Palestinians and not the Israelis. And that is about as powerful a statement as anyone can make uh, in terms of the global power situation. Uh, but we will not be discussing that today. We have a ton of stuff in the first hour about the uh, uh, situation in Wisconsin, in Ohio, in Florida. We have someone who's been out in the streets in Florida collecting signatures, our own Wendy Lederman. We want to get a, a report on that. We have a case in um, uh, Wisconsin that's probably going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And we have a situation in Ohio that, once again, you could not make up when Rachel Coyle joins us. We'll go into the uh, deep dive on, on on what happens in Ohio in the second hour. Uh, well, we're also going to talk about uh, Cop City, this horrendous situation in Atlanta where the progressive uh, people of color who are running Atlanta are absolutely um, uh, sabotaging democracy and participating in the murder, basically, uh, uh, of, of a young man who uh, we need to discuss. So, so that's going to fill the first hour. We have a lot of other geopolitical stuff to deal with uh, uh, around the country. The second hour is going to be entirely devoted to the uh, most important fight, political fight in the country, to uh, uh, possibly the world, as far as I'm concerned, at least outside the Middle East. And that is uh, the situation at Diablo Canyon, California at the nuclear plant and with the nuclear industry as a whole, because um, we are seeing amazingly uh, very powerful stuff uh, from the New York Times uh, and elsewhere about the the tsunami of renewable energy, including in agrivoltaics, the use of uh, solar panels on agricultural land to enhance agricultural productivity. You know, the idea uh, in the public mind is if you put solar panels in farmland, you lose the farmland. Turn out that that's the, the opposite is true, and that um, uh, there's very, very significant crop growing capability um, underneath solar panels um, uh, all over the country and all over the world. So we'll be discussing that in the second hour, but our prime focus is going to be on uh, the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant and the national campaign to shut these old reactors before they shut us. In the in the first uh, place. We want to face our, our national uh, political crisis, as we always do. That's in the first hour. Um, and um, I'd like to start, actually, we don't, I don't see Rachel Coyle yet from Ohio. Um, so I'd like to start with uh, Florida and Wendy Lederman. And, you know, we talk a lot about um, uh, relational organizing. Um, that's, a, a, you know, one of our primary focuses uh, on the green grassroots emergency election protection Zoom calls. And um, but we rarely have people on who are actually out doing it. And um, uh, before I proceed, by the way, I want to welcome Lynn Cherry to our cause. I want to tell you about Lynn, Lynn's books in a while. Lynn, it's great to have you with us. Lynn is a truly uh, fabulous and very famous and very successful 
author of children's books. So I want to talk to Lynn uh, as we proceed. But um, so Lynn, I hope you'll stay with us. It's great to see you. Uh, Wendy Lederman, you have been out on the streets in Florida. Uh, I don't know if you've been personally accosted yet uh, by Ron DeSantis, but you have been gathering signatures for the proposed referendum on uh, choice in Florida. And you've been telling me some pretty serious horror stories about what it's been like. So here, here's where the rubber meets the road, folks. Wendy has been out there um, um, uh, getting yelled at and accosted and, um, and doing her best to gather signatures, which is at the core of what we believe in in these calls. Uh, Wendy, <laughs> what's it been like gathering signatures in Florida for a pro-choice uh, constitutional amendment? Thanks for asking. It's been interesting. It's been very interesting. Um, so, uh, yeah, I haven't been personally accosted by Ron DeSantis yet. Um, I've received a, a lot of backlash, a lot of really aggressive backlash um, to where, I mean, almost every, if I can go a whole day without being called baby killer, it's been a phenomenal day. Um, yesterday, the like I think maybe the first or second person I approached um was like, so you're trying to kill babies, like that's their immediate response. Not understanding that there's really no um exceptions right now. Um, as it stands right now, Florida has a 15 week ban, but a six week ban was passed and it's just being held up in appeals in a, in a court case right now. Um, and if that if the conservative court upholds it. Then we go straight to a six week ban that has basically no exceptions. Like if you're raped, you have to show documentation of it. I'm afraid something like the um the 10 year old girl in Texas that was forced to carry that we would be seeing um, situations like that. We have so many women um in maternity maternity wards right now. Can I interrupt you for one second? What exactly constitutes documentation of a rape? Like police reports. Um, I, I mean, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. It's very vague and a does the really rapist, like, Does the rapist have to sign a like a waiver notice that he in fact committed a rape? Is is that what's accepted in the courts? I, it's 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 a little too vague. You know, I, I my brain isn't disturbed enough to even <laughs> try to to be able to comprehend what um these people like whoever even thought of that. Is is just a little bit beyond my bounds. I, I'm really not sure. It's it's just a very vague thing. Like police reports, maybe hospital rape kits. Um, uh, I'm I'm really not clear exactly what would be accepted and what wouldn't be. But just the fact that that's something that is um, a thing is really weird. Um, and and so there's a lot of women that um, you know, sometimes pregnancies the the fetus doesn't survive and it's killing the mother or it's seriously hurting her or it has maybe a 10 percent chance of actually surviving if it is carried to term and doctors are too afraid of going to jail or losing their license and so they let the women sit there and suffer and i don't want to be too grotesque but it's um they're just left to suffer and go through all the natural things that happen that are very painful and disturbing and traumatic and can possibly die and i don't know if people know the statistics particularly towards Black women in the maternity wards right now that just because of systemic racism don't get the care that they need. Well, let me ask you this. Since you're on the road here, and this is what we want to find out, 
what percentage of the people that you approach in Florida, what town are you in? I'm I'm in the Miami area. Sometimes I go up to Broward, but I'm generally in Miami and I, I found certain park, pockets that are more receptive and progressive. But in the Miami area, I, I mean, I would say maybe 10 to 20% of the people I approach, which is really low on. And I've worked a lot of campaigns, a lot of different campaigns, whether it's medical marijuana, going up against the utility companies to demonopolize several times, Amendment 4 for the felons rights. I've never had this kind of emotional knee-jerk, ego-based reaction, dogma, religious-based reaction from people. I'm hoping that other areas of the state are not as reflective as this conservative area, because if Miami is any representation of the whole population, which I don't think that it is, but if it is, like, we need a 60% supermajority. I'm confident we'll get the measure on the ballot to amend the constitution, which would obviously override the legislature. But if we do get it to the ballot, if the voters are anything like they are in Miami, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm not confident about it. Um, one thing- Is that there really an concerns- ethnic breakdown in the, in the kinds of response that you get? I mean, you're, you're getting, no one's assaulted you yet, right? Thank God. Um, I- yeah, I, I mean, verbally, yes, um, every day. But um, I did have one guy a few months ago. Um, I was in the Hollywood area, which is in Broward, which was used to be pretty progressive and liberal. I had one guy come at me with a shopping cart, like beeline straight for me. And I just I stood there. I, st- I stood my ground. And um, and when he got within about an inch of me, he swerved around me and then just got like right in my face. And we had like eyeballed each other. And um, and it was like looking right at the devil himself. Um, one thing I want to, I want to say is that what really disturbs me, there's two things that I'm finding, maybe three things that I'm finding really disturbing. One is that the voters don't care about the separation of church and state. They do not care about it. These evangelical, I just keep hearing, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And I'm like, well, what if a child is raped? What if the woman's life is in danger and it's not viable? Well, it's God's will. It's God's will. That's it's God's child. And it's like, well, I don't think that's what Jesus would really want if you really get the full picture of what's happening. And so the separation of church and state is one of our fundamental things to democracy. And and it's just I, I think people are aware and they're just more concerned about putting their will on others and calling it God's will. Um, another thing that bothers me a lot is that in particularly um, with black black people, um, you know, I always say if your vote didn't count, they wouldn't try so hard to take it from you. But I keep hearing like, I'm free. I don't participate in the system. And it, to me, that it's it's a backwards like um, logic that goes against self-interest. And I really wish people un- understood more that, you know, again, if your vote didn't count, they wouldn't try so hard to take it from you. And so I hope that there's um, more outreach within that community to see that, you know, it's issues on the ballot, not always just people. And, you know, that's how fascism happens is when we refuse to participate. That's the opposite. Um, I can't culturally speak to that, but in my personal opinion. And then another thing that I've brought up before is that, um, you know, I, I would try to go into um, to Black areas to kind of make bridges with people and to do just outreach and connect the community. And I was getting a lot of really low validity where I turn in the petitions that people sign that they think that they're registered to vote and they're not registered. And um, what's happening is that when people move, if they don't change their 
address on their driver's license, then they get purged from the voter rolls and they're not aware that that's happening and we're in an eviction epidemic. So those are three points. Um, Have you had people tell you that they won't sign because they're afraid of repercussions if they sign? Um, I I have, and that's something that you'll get um, in any campaign. And that's, and when we talk about Cop City, that's a point I want to bring up. Um, I think what I'm seeing most of is that people just don't want to put their personal information down because they're afraid of having like identity theft and uh, and getting phone calls, robocalls and having their information get out or that, you know, they just don't want to give their personal because they have to get their voter address and their birthday if they don't have their voter number, which most people don't. So people can be hesitant about that. Um, it's a, a small, I'd say maybe about 20, 25 percent, usually older population, which is understandable. But we need, you know, we need to participate in democracy. You know, it's the only way that we can do this. Um, so I no always appreciate when people, yeah. Well, we are concerned about you, uh, your your tender self going out <laughs> in the streets <laughs> like this. But, you know, it's amazing. And it's very powerful to hear this. Uh, Ruth Strauss, did you want to ask Wendy a question? Ruth? Yeah, actually, I didn't want to ask you a question, but I wanted to tell you a corollary to that and your your neighbor uh, at Alabama next door. Um, they uh, Tom Hartman uh, did a, t- a horrendous story today about a woman who got arrested in her second month of pregnancy for methamphetamine. They jailed her. They made her go through labor in her cell. She was screaming. They told her to stop screaming. Um, finally, uh, she broke her water. She gave birth standing up in the shower because they would not take her to the hospital. She bled profusely, almost died. She had abruptio placenta, which is a, you know, gynecological, an obstetric emergency. And then after she delivered, they brought her back to the jail and, and wouldn't give the baby back. I mean, and, and, there was another case, you know, similar case like that. So it's really, it, it, it's really bad. And God bless you for doing the work. Thank well, you. Um, thank you for that, Ruth. Um, uh, go ahead, Wendy. Thank you. Um, yeah, Ruth's bringing up a point because, um, and I'm sorry, it's it's really hard this week to like take in all, I think we're all collectively feeling, um, you know, just kind of the despair we feel just by, and I feel like anytime I, I put on like the news or anything, it's like, I feel like there should be a banner that says abandon all hope, all you who enter in. Um, I'm hearing a lot of personal stories of people that had to have abortions, whether it was, or doctors that were doctors at the time when before Roe versus Wade and what they would see, um, what the women w- would go through um, be- before they could have safe access and um, just the traumatic stories women who accidentally got pregnant when they were my age and in their forties. And, you know, we're told that it's like, it's their life for the child and the child's probably not going to make it. Or if it does, it's going to have some really messed up disease. And it's just, people ask me like, so I'll ask, I'll approach people and, and tell them, you know, this is just to put it on the ballot to let the voters decide, especially in cases of emergency up to viability or cases of involuntary pregnancy or in case like rape. And they just say, so you're pro-abortion. And I tell them nobody's pro-abortion. Nobody's pro-abortion. It's one of the most traumatic decisions a woman could possibly make. Like I, I personally, I've never done it. I probably would never have one, but it's not up to me to tell anybody else what to do for themselves. And it's like, 
I mean, I talked to women that had an abortion like 40 years ago, and you could see in their eyes that it, they're still haunted by it. And, and um, you know, I, I just I stopped calling them pro-lifers because they're pro-birthers. They don't give a damn about the kid once they're born. They don't give a damn about these women that are bleeding out to death. They don't care. And they're going to arrest doctors just for trying to save a woman's life. It, it is so horrifying to to think about the reality of what's what the, this really means and the fact and the people who are making these laws their girlfriends not their wives but their girlfriends they need something they're going to go where they need to go and get what they need to get they don't give a damn it's just about control it's all about controlling the population it's it's well, it's, it's especially just, controlling the women obviously uh, i assume you have people who come up to you and thank you for what you're doing i do thanks for saying that yeah, I do. Even people that don't sign, um, I, I do. Um, and it's like it for all the for 10, 20 people that are negative towards me, I get one person that truly is grateful of all ages, men, women. I get actually I'm getting more support from men, especially recently for some reason. The other day I went out and I had like two or three women sign and the rest were men. Um, so but I do I get a lot of people that that thank me and understand um what it takes to be out there doing it. But I love petitioning. I really do because you know, you get to educate people about the democratic process. If um if a mom or a dad stops and they have a kid that's old enough to understand, I'll just explain to them what an, a citizen's initiative is and get them excited about being able to vote when they're able to and participate in democracy and they light up and it's really inspiring and like, I, I, I wish that petition campaigns went all year, every year, like no matter the negativity, like I, I, I love being a part of the process. I love people coming together, people stopping, you know, they're going about their day. They're trying to get home, feed their families, and they still take a minute to stop and give me a stranger their personal information just because they understand how important it is to be able to have a voice in the system and participate. And I, I just absolutely love it regardless. Well, one thing that always bugs me also, and I'm, I hope people appreciate this deep dive here, but uh, is uh, it's astounding to me that people can be call themselves pro-life and uh, demand that we not have abortions and at the same time uh, support the death penalty, which we know kills at least 10% of the people who are put to death are innocent. I mean, it's a statistical reality. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, George W. Bush was governor of Texas and presided over 152 executions. So we are reasonably sure that 15 of those people were were innocent and he just killed 15 people. And yeah. then they also oppose gun control, which yeah. is, you know, I mean, it's astounding, the, the, the hypocrisy. Yeah, and they just um roll. They're trying to roll back child labor laws right now to compensate for all the all migrant workers that they're losing because of their racist policies. Um, they just uh, lowered the threshold for imposing the death penalty, where you don't even need a juror majority right. vote, which is really terrifying. And you know, growing up, my mom worked in foster care. She was just a secretary, but sometimes I would I would go with her to the office or whatever we call it, the office. But you know, I would you know I would interact all the time with the kids that are in foster care. And I mean, out of all the people that want to call me a baby killer or whatever they want to call me, how many of them have adopted? I've met one person that actually adopted that she was against abortion and she did adopt. One person out of all the thousands of people I've spoken to in the last few months. Um, and, and it's just not something, it's like there's this cognitive dissonance where they don't want to accept the reality. Like it's, it's a huge 
religious dogma. And I just really try as best as I can to get people to understand the nuances and all the factors to communicate with their communities. And they refuse to even believe like they're they're like, I guess, lied to about what the law actually is and what the actual reality is. And they actually think that I'm out here trying to kill babies. Like I'm out here on a Saturday night in front of a like supermarket or whatever it is, like trying to get signatures and the humidity, like because I want to kill babies like that really makes a whole lot of sense. And I'm waving to your child saying hi, what a cutie. It's like it's a, people just are stuck in their beliefs for whatever inner trauma that they don't want to come out of to face reality beyond what they're comfortable in and it's it's frightening because again we have a separation of church and state you know i'm just trying to put something on the ballot to let the voters decide and we would need a 60 percent supermajority and they're like no i'm a christian that's that like okay Okay. all right i don't know all right uh, uh, Justin, did you want to say something? And then we're going to move on. Wendy, you are truly astounding. We have 54 yeah. people in the call. We're going to go to Rachel Coyle in a minute and visit Ohio. But uh, go ahead, Justin. Justin Mike, you need to unmute. There. Okay. So one of the things to bring into all of this is that, you know, people will default to what they're familiar with, right? So their traditions of things. And so when we talk about, say, Christian Orthodox, most people don't know that the number one abortion state in the statistics is actually a Christian Orthodox nation. It's Russia. Russia. And of course, that's the same nation that is being defended all over the media by the right wing, is that supposedly that they've got uh, the value system that aligns with the evangelical portion of america and so we need to really support russia in everything that they do well in russia in russia they hate gays so right so i guess that compensates it's okay to have abortions if you hate gay people is that is that is that the way it goes in russia i wouldn't be surprised if the statistics actually support that there are quite a uh, gay culture in russia just hidden oh it's it's a nightmare over there and those of you who are interested uh peter tchaikovsky who i consider the greatest Russian composer was gay, and they basically put him to death for being gay in Russia in the 1880s, a long time ago. But there you go. Uh, okay, adjusting Another part your- of the messaging here is that we need to get back to an idea of a rising tide raises all boats, right? Not everything that Planned Parenthood does is abortion. In fact, it's only 3% of what they do. So what about the other 97%? Is any of that of benefit to your community? We right. need to really have more nuanced discussions. Right. And uh, as has been pointed out in the chat here, you know, we need better, a better health care system and better care. And, and I got to tell you, you know, this wonderful liberal governor we have here in California talking about abortion. It's amazing. It's also amazing to me that people who consider themselves pro-life and want to ban abortion also want to ban birth control. I mean, what are you thinking about? And the governor of California has just vetoed a bill that would have given free condoms to all high school kids. And he vetoes the bill. So, you know, it's hard for me to say. We got 55 people on the call. We're going to come back to you in a minute or two for Cop City. We have Rachel Coyle. I want to talk to you about Ohio. Go ahead, Wendy. Thank you. Just one um, quick point. I do want to um, thank Justin for bringing that up because I do um, 
try to communicate that it's a healthcare issue. And I want to say that, and also, um, and in schools, they're not even teaching education in schools. So like kids don't even know, like, you know, about like, you're not allowed right. to mention menstruation. Like you can't say the word menstruation in middle school now in Florida. Um, but I do get, I would say maybe about 20% of people that start off really staunchly pro-life. It happened just the other night. Um, I was at a store and some guy was like, well, what if the guy wants to have the baby and then the woman wants to abort it? And I'm like, well, what if she was raped? And I start communicating with them in a way that's not aggressive. And I would say about at least 20% of the people that start off like almost mad at me for trying end up signing because they, they're not absolutists like the rest of the people. So, you know, I won't abandon all hope. Even if the signs say that, I refuse to. Um, just got to keep communicating and stay positive and just focus on on visualizing a positive outcome on all this. Thank well, you, Wendy, I- we're all in awe of you and we're thrilled to have you as one of our co-conveners. Uh, and thank you for your great work. And we'll come back to you in a few minutes on uh, about uh, Cop City. But that's an astonishing presence. I can't imagine you standing out there at the 7-Elevens in the middle of Florida. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Okay, thank you, Wendy. Stay with us, please. Um, we got Rachel Coyle wearing her Ohio State sweatshirt. Um, um, you know, I, I lived in Columbus for many years, and I would never, I went to Michigan. I would never wear my Michigan stuff in Columbus over the weekend of the big game. So you're safe right now. Um, can you give us the latest Michigas from Ohio? It's astounding. I do want to recognize uh, Joel Siegel's with us, uh, John Steiner, the great Ray McClendon. I was with us. Um, um, uh, so uh, Anna Georgie from Western Mass. Anna, Anna, I hope you'll be with us in the second hour. We're going to talk about shutting nuclear plants, including Montague. Uh, uh, go ahead, Rachel. Let's talk about Ohio. What's the latest? There's a lot happening in Ohio. I didn't even notice I was wearing my OSU shirt. I Most of what I own has Ohio State stuff on it. Um, so <laughs> We can still be friends. That's good. That's good. So Ohio has a huge election coming up uh, in less than four weeks, exactly four weeks. So it's November 7th. We are voting on abortion rights, marijuana, adult use marijuana, and we have a significant number of extremists running for school board elections, which I know is happening all over the country. So if you have school board elections this year, remember to vote in those elections. Uh, So we've got just an unbelievable chance to really improve the state of things in Ohio uh, in just a few weeks. But if it goes the wrong way, it could be a long time until we get abortion rights and adult use marijuana on the ballot again. So if you know anyone in Ohio, make sure they know to vote. We also have, it's very confusing for folks because we had that illegal election just a few weeks ago in August, um, where the entire campaign was trying to get everyone to vote no to defend democracy. And now um, the exact same issue one again in November is abortion rights and we need everyone to vote yes. So it's very confusing for folks. And we know that they did that on purpose. So there's a lot of people who you know, think that they're pro-choice, think that they're trying to vote for abortion, um, but they think they're supposed to vote no on issue one. And so we have to get the word out not only that there is an election, but that you have to vote differently than you did just a few weeks ago. Uh, so it's it's been chaos, but we I'm people are supportive in the polls of these issues. So we just need to make sure people have the information uh, necessary to vote. Now, when you say we, what kind of organization do you have going in Ohio? Is there a strong grassroots 
you know, the kind of that Ray McClendon would, would want to build? And are you in touch with Ray, who's on the call here, um, you know, does that kind of organizing? We are. It's it's a very good organization. They've got um, several different coalitions working together. So one is the Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights. It's literally a large group of doctors who were worried about their patients who started a group. And they're working alongside all the reproductive rights groups that are active in the state, like uh, Pro-Choice Ohio and Planned Parenthood and uh, the Abortion Fund and all of these different groups working together. And then they've got support from several of the unions as well. So they've got a good ground game. They're knocking on doors, letting people know that in November we're supposed to vote yes, which is a different message than just a few weeks ago. So I do think the coalition is is very good, very strong. They've got enough money to be on TV with ads. So that's key. Um, but I'll put some links in the chat too for anyone who wants to help spread the word. And I'm happy to connect with anyone who's interested. Well, um, uh, Ray McClendon, um, um, are you on with us here still, Ray? Ray, can you identify if you're with us? Yeah, I'm here. <clears throat> have you, um, and meet Rachel. Hello. Have, have you been involved in any kind of uh, relational organizing in Ohio? And have you uh, been No, not, not to this point. We have not. Um, um, Rachel, you should be in touch with Ray because um, the kind of, you know, I hear that you're, you're buying TV ads and that is what it is. But um, in the month that's remaining, maybe there could be some steps taken forward on grassroots organizing because Ray's the master. And, um, uh, you know, they pulled it off in Georgia. And in, in a case like Ohio, you know, we do have seven BIPOC places, which is Cleveland, Toledo, um, Akron, Youngstown, Columbus, Dayton, and Cincinnati. And um, they all have, I don't have to tell you, they're very substantial BIPOC communities where this kind of organizing could be great, greatly useful. So if you two could please connect, and Ray, maybe you could take a look at what they're doing and see if, if your great knowledge could be uh, of use, maybe it'll make a difference. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'll great. put my email in the chat, and I'd love to. Okay, hear. great. We'll reach yes, out. Yes, please do, and because uh, you know, and, and we're going to have to warm up in Ohio because in in twenty four, um, you know, it's all going to happen, and they're going to uh, go after. We are nonpartisan, but um, um, I personally love Sherrod Brown, and um, it's going to be a miracle uh, to get him back in the Senate, and. Um, uh, th that kind of organizing has will make the difference. I mean, John Steiner's on the call. We did talk to the last Democratic Senate can candidate and suggested that maybe they try grassroots organizing, and we never heard from him again. So in this case, um, with Sherrod, who's a personal friend, um, you know, this has to happen. So maybe we can make a breakthrough here that would make a big difference. Uh, I appreciate that. Okay. Okay. Okay, so um, uh, the, what's with gerrymandering now in Ohio? Is that on the ballot again? We are hoping it will be on the ballot next November 2024. Uh, so folks are now at the point where they're able to gather signatures. They got past uh, the ballot board. They got past the attorney general approving their language. And now they need to collect what is a couple, hundreds of thousands of signatures like we did with abortion rights uh, to try and get an anti-gerrymandering amendment on Ohio's ballot next year. That's the Citizens Not Politicians campaign. Um, and they are it's a really I am from what I've read so far, I'll need to dive into it more after the election. But I really like the 
way they're the strategy they're using, which is they would create a citizen commission uh, that is this equal number of Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and it would ban all current previous uh, politicians from the process entirely, which I'm a big fan of. Well, you need to look at the the um, districting commission in California. Um, in, in California, um, um, in 2008 and 2010, there were referenda. One was for the for the state legislature, and then the other was for the congressional delegation. And Arnold Schwarzenegger donated three million dollars to these campaigns. Now he was a Republican. And the, the gerrymandering in, in California was dominated by the Democrats. And Nancy Pelosi opposed uh, this, co- this, this commission. But it's been in place for more than 10 years now. And but it's, it's actually very well-liked, very successful. I can't give you the detail, but you should look at it. Because um, this is the, the as best I can tell at this, well, until recently, the most successful a, a districting commission in any state. So please take a look at um, at, at what's going on in California. Yeah, we got sure. a couple of hands. Steve Caruso, you're in Ohio. Go ahead. Yeah, the uh, person running against Sherrod Brown is Secretary of State. That's David. Sorry, David. I'm, he was next, but David, you're driving. Maybe you should give it a second. We don't want to so, talk to you if you're driving. They, we can't do that. He was just recently this uh, guy that's running against Sherrod Brown on Steve Bannon's show, all out Trump. Okay. And he's also got a thumb on the scale all the way around the elections. Whatever is, he you're talking do. about the sec- you're talking about the Secretary of State of Ohio, Secretary of State, who's an extreme beret, by the way, mind you. Okay, so then in what was it, Bell Fountain? He, they had a an issue on the ballot up there, and he let it slide through, even though they had changed the wording in front of the ballot, and they kept all the signatures. And the Supreme Court, which is run by Republicans, you know, said no, sorry, buddy, you can't let that happen. So, you know, we're keeping an eye on this guy and uh, he's kind of dangerous, kind of out there. And if you're hanging out with Steve Bannon, all bets are off as far as I'm concerned. So that's all I got to say. Okay, so in Ohio, as I've said before, we used to have the problem (laughs) with the marijuana marijuana activists that they would get too stoned and they wouldn't get enough signatures. So I guess you've overcome that this time. And what is the uh, nature of the marijuana um, statute? Is it total legality or what is it? It is. Yes. It would allow for uh, small amounts of home grow as well, which is nice. And it could create a system similar to what they have in Michigan, where you could sell and buy it legally. Um, So it would for adults over the age of 21, obviously. Uh, So it is, it's, very, it's very well written, um, and it's available. Let me see if I can put the link in the chat. Well, let um, me suggest while you're doing that that I would suggest that one week prior to the election, or I guess you probably have early voting, that yeah. let's say a month before the election, you ask for a statewide ban on marijuana smoking, so that the people who are going to vote will remember to go to the polls. Can you do that? I'll see what I can do. Okay, so um, um, so it's a total legalization in Ohio. It's not just medical. 
Correct. Ohio currently has medical. So this would um, legalize recreational for adults over the age of 21. Okay. All right. And, and what's the abortion statute say? It would essentially restore what we had under Roe versus Wade. So abortion would be legal up to the point of you could ban it after the point of viability, uh, except with life and health of the mother, obviously, uh, exemptions in there. And it would basically restore Roe. Um, and it's exactly one page long. It's easy to read. I'll share. We literally have a website called readtheamendment.com. Our entire goal is to get everyone in Ohio to read it and see that it's that simple. And it's not extreme. It doesn't include anything else. They're trying to pretend it in involves trans youth somehow or parents' rights or things that are not at all written in the amendment. Um, literally, all it would do is restore abortion rights up to viability. Okay. Well, good luck with it. And definitely connect with Ray. Uh, having lived in Ohio all these years, there has to be a bottom-up change in how progressives do campaigning in Ohio. It, it, it has to happen. Uh, the, 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 the progressives in Ohio were so hamstrung by uh, outmoded mo ways of thinking about organizing. You need Ray McClendon and you need Andrea Miller. And so please make that connection, okay? Uh, it would be wonderful. Yeah. Good, luck with, good luck with the referenda. And, um, you know, Ohio has already passed two anti-gerrymandering referenda, and they, it's still a nightmare. So hopefully let's, let's think that this will take root. I do want to jump over. I don't know if we had David. anybody on from this time. Oh, Rick, Rick, did you pull over? Dave, no, I'll David Gurren. Go ahead, David. David Gurren, are you stopped? I'm stopping right now. Please. The last thing we right. to see a car wreck I'm, on our Zoom. I'm stopped. Okay, go ahead. I'm okay. Stopped. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So uh, I just wanted to add uh, on the abortion uh, uh, reproductive rights amendment, it also guarantees that contraceptives would be available. Uh, Yes. which I guess some far-right groups want to get rid of contraceptives. Um, and groups that are working on it, uh, I belong to an indivisible group. We are canvassing door-to-door. -door. Uh, also, the Democratic Party is supporting issue one. And um, um, Democratic Socialists of America, at least in Akron, uh, our group is, is, uh, is doing canvassing. Um, so there is, uh, you know, various groups out there, be, um, uh, besides one that, the, the, that Rachel had mentioned, um, and thank you, Rachel, for everything you do. I appreciate it. And, Are you uh, in, you're in Ohio, Rick, uh, Dave, it's Dave, Dave, Dave. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, okay. yes, I live in Akron, Ohio, actually. All right. So, uh, so these two major amendments will tell a big story, uh, in Ohio. Yes. Is there anything else on the ballot? Oh. Yeah. It's, it's on the ballot for this November. All right. And well, then, um, so I also want to mention in terms of the uh, independent commission, uh, a lot of it was based on uh, the Michigan uh, model, actually. Um, they did look at, at California also. The group, the two groups that were involved with that is Common Cause Ohio and the League of Women Voters Ohio. Uh, they work together and they looked at the other models out there. And I believe a lot of it's is based on Michigan, uh, but they try to, you know, get the best uh, what worked best and also what would work best in Ohio. 
So. All right, very good. I, I, I'm going to emphasize to you again, uh, along with Rachel, you need to be in touch with Ray McClendon and Andrea Miller and really the, the relational grassroots campaigning model that changed Florida and the U.S. Senate has got to go into Ohio. There's no, no reason to continue losing these um, elections in Ohio. It's right. still, you know, I grew up in Ohio when it was a Democratic state. It's still a mind boggle to me that it's not, but that's because of the way the campaigning is going. So you got to change it. And gerrymandering. Yeah. Yes. Well, the gerrymandering is part of the package. So right. you know, that's, that's the way it's at. So you and Rachel, please contact Ray McClendon. He'll get you with Andrea Miller and maybe we can change Ohio going forward. Something's got to happen. Yep. All right. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank and you. You, can drive, you can drive again, Ray. I, I mean, uh, uh, David, uh, we need to we need to see your license, but I won't let that go. Okay, go ahead. All right, thank you both. Thank you, everybody. We have 50, 58 people on the call. I do want to bring up what's going on in Wisconsin. I don't know if we have anybody uh, from Wisconsin on the call at this point, but it's quite mind-boggling, as I think most of you are aware, and we did have a report before. Um, we, uh, we witnessed, we followed through the process, the election of a uh, liberal Supreme Court justice to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which tipped the balance uh, to, uh, to four to three. And the um, that Supreme Court is on the break now of changing the gerrymandering laws in Wisconsin. And the Republican response was to try to talk about impeaching the newly elected Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin, uh, Janet Prezeowitz. <laughs> if, if I'm close, that's it. And um, um, they have just now, this week, backed off. And apparently they're not going to do it. So what they're saying now, the Republicans in Wisconsin, they want her to recuse herself from the decision on gerrymandering because she made a comment, a public comment, so Proteowitz, Proteowitz is... But somebody got in there. So Proto-Sawitz. Proto Proto-Sawitz. There you go. So what the, the, the Republicans now are saying, they're not going to impeach her, uh, but they are going to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court where they're expecting, you know, the, the, the right wing to throw her out. But I'm going to tell you something right now. The last thing the U.S. Supreme Court justices are going to do is going to allow the impeachment of a Supreme Court justice at the state level. That's not going to happen. And so uh, I think what's, what is going to happen um, is that in Wisconsin, uh, she will stay on the court. The court will overturn the gerrymandered maps in Wisconsin. And in 2024, God willing, um, and I'll get the Norm Stockwell back on next week, um, uh, that the, there will be a change in Wisconsin like what happened in Michigan. Um, that's a prediction. But the Republicans did come forward basically and said they're not going to they're not going to impeach her. They could change, but currently that's the that's the common belief. Okay, does anybody else want to jump in on this before we go back to Florida? I did want to take an opportunity. Lynn, Lynn Cherry, are you still on the call? Lynn Cherry, do we see Lynn Cherry here? Can you raise your hand? Uh, I guess she's not on. Uh, oh, oh, Tatanka Bricka, good to see you. Uh, glad to have you on. And Tatanka, Lynn is here. What's that? Lynn is here. 
Okay, congratulations to Tonka on your election to the KPFK board. I think actually you will enjoy it. Uh, you, working with me and Myla, who's on the call, and some other really great people. Lynn Cherry, can we uh, highlight you real quick? I just want to, um, uh, there's, is that Lynn? She's here, but your video is not. Okay, so I just want to mention the name Lynn Cherry. Lynn Cherry is a multi-million dollar bookseller. She wrote a book called The Kapok Tree, uh, which is one of the great environmental, it's really one of the top five environmental books ever written. It's right up there with uh, the Lorax and others. And um, she is uh, absolutely terrific. I wish we could see you, Lynn. Uh, Lynn, you're going to have to come back when you, uh, when we can show. Uh, Mike, Steve, if you can dig up a copy of, of an image of the great Kapok tree, uh, that would be really great. Uh, but um, anyway, Lynn, I guess we'll see you another time. It's really great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, in the second hour, we're going to go into nuclear power. We're 15 minutes away from that. We want to talk about uh, Diablo Canyon in particular, and we want to have um, a very specific uh, discussions on the strategies for shutting nuclear power, which, after all, is just an adjunct of the nuclear weapons industry. Uh, Rick LaMonica, did you want to speak? And then Sandy Bozinius. Rick LaMonica, go ahead. I got to unmute you. Oh, okay. You do it. <laughs> there you go. You're good. I wanted to tell uh, Rachel that also um, there's an AFSC um, office that used to be in Akron, and I think the, the guy that ran it moved it to Cleveland where he lived, and I'm uh, forgetting his name. Greg Coleridge. Yeah, Greg Coleridge. Thank you. And uh, there is also a small Alliance for Democracy membership in Ohio, and they sh should be able to help you with the, all this petition signature getting to get that stuff on the ballot. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, Wilf and some of these other groups. Um, so I don't know if you can get contact with Common Cause and get them to help you, um, but it, the Alliance is a small group and we should be able to help. All right, so um, um, Rachel, if you're still with us, if you can, or Steve, put your put her contacts in the chat, and um, um, we will uh, make sure that that connection is made. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. We all appreciate it. Sandy Bozinius, Sandy, you with us here? Okay. Oh, Rachel, you got it. Yeah, okay, I'm here. Okay, Go so ahead, um, yeah, first of all, Harvey, you say my name so well, better than I do, my last name, and it's not oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's my new teeth. They, they help me, you know. <laughs> ah, okay, there it is. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know if this is really pertinent to the conversation, but I thought it might be. Um, we've got a couple, our, our central, you know, Columbus is, you know, they say it's Democrat-led, but really it's light, re Republican-light. So um, I just want to throw out that we've got two people. Joe Motil is running for mayor. He's contesting the mayor um, and who just keeps giving tax abatement after tax abatement and issues with the police. And then we have um, Adrian Hood, whose son was killed several years ago by the police and she's running for city council. She'll be terrific. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because it's so cool to see local people, you know, just regular people on the ground stepping up to the plate and um, all the people who are trying to, you know, help them out. And um, I mean, I just, I just love the 
um, bottom up because that's the only way it's going to work. <laughs> so Absolutely. Throw that Thank in. you for that. Sandy, make sure you're in touch with Rachel. And join I, I just, I just wrote, I'm just right. I just wrote her now. So Rachel, I okay, got you. So Thanks. Sandy's also in Columbus, Rachel. And um, <clears throat> God help us. We got to win Ohio back. You know, there was a time when no president, um, no Republican president had ever been elected ever, you know, starting with Lincoln without carrying Ohio. Um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was elected, I think, in 36 or uh, one one time Franklin Roosevelt ran for president and did not carry Ohio and won. Uh, but uh, no Republican ever won without Ohio. So. But, but the problem in Ohio and all around the country is once they find that you're a stronghold, they just suppress, suppress, oppress, arrest, whatever they need to do to make sure that, um, you know, we the real voices are not able to rise to the top. So that's what we're fighting against. Anyway, yes. <laughs> no, no, there's no, well, we know now, forewarned is forearmed. So we, we got to deal with it. So be, please be in touch, in touch with Rachel and with coaching from Ray and, and uh, Andrea. Maybe um, maybe we can turn that around. Okay. Thanks. Did anybody else want, I want to go back to Wendy. If anybody else is not, I see no other hands. Wendy, I want you to please, if you can, talk about Cop City and what's happening in in, in this horrendous situation please we only we have 11 minutes till the top of the hour and, and we go nuclear so uh, 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 anybody else wants to say anything before the top of the hour uh please do go ahead wendy thank you um yes pop city um i think i should just start by saying what is happening there should send grand bells of alarm and terror for the democratic process what is unfolding continually since the murder of Tortuguita in January and probably before that. But I just want to really emphasize how terrifying the implications of this story are. So Tortuguita, um, Manuel uh, Tiran Perez uh, was shot 57 times. And I'll, I'll just, I'll call this segment 57 bullet holes speak for themselves. He was shot 57 times by police. Independent autopsies showed that he was sitting cross-legged inside a tent in a meditative position with his hands up. No gunpowder residue was found on his hands. Yet the six officers who shot him will not be facing charges and there'll be no further investigation by the state of Georgia or the city of Atlanta. Um, there are 61 RICO charges right now the racketeering conspiracy so what's used against gangsters right and, and people like trump against protesters um just for dissent i mean even people that were collecting bail funds for other protesters who were arrested at like a music festival that wasn't even happening near the site of where this police facility is being built that hasn't even been approved but they're tearing down sacred forests already to build this $90 billion police facility where the police will be trained by Israeli forces to suppress urban uprising and dissent. It's modeled after a city. Um, the people, there were people that were passing out flyers with the names of the cops that shot Tortuguita. They're now facing RICO charges, 61 pe people sitting in Fulton County Jail. All right, we need, we need a Fulton, Fulton Prison Blues song. Because this is where LaShawn Thompson was eaten by bedbugs awaiting trial before he was even charged, eaten to death by bedbugs in this overcrowded prison that is overcrowded 
by multiples. It's it's horrendous, the conditions in this prison. It's notorious. And these are people that were passing out flyers, that were attending a music festival, that were collecting bail funds. And these RICO charges stem back to the date that George Floyd was murdered long before Cop City was even proposed. So um, the Georgia state attorney, Chris Carr, is the person who brought these charges. He's I'm calling him a Cox, Cox Brothers bro. Like he's, he um, and and the people that, and so the Atlanta Police Foundation is part of who's funding it. Like the city is supposed to match funds up to, to, to create this $90 million facility. And well, tell us Atlanta, now about the uh, attempt to get the uh, ballot on because we're going to run out of time. So tell us what's happened to the democratic process in terms of gathering signatures and getting a, uh, a ballot initiative to cancel the project. Got it. Thank you. Um, so they needed a petition of 100,000 signatures from Atlanta residents just to get a referendum to put Cop City to vote. They collected in I mean, two or three months, they collected 116,000 signatures. And the city um, was like, they publicly were like, okay, we'll put it to referendum. But then behind the scenes, we're taking it to court. And the judge was like, basically like, yo, no, like this is what you're doing is horrendous. Like this needs to, for the people, you know, dem democracy needs to prevail here and you need to be honest. So now they're appealing it and they're, you know, challenging signature verification and they're just tying it up in court. Meanwhile, like they don't even need the court. They could just put it on the ballot like the democratic process says. Now, beyond waiting for those verifications and that appeal, they've hired um, some lawyers. So I'll, I'll put them, then I'll put some phone numbers in the chat after I speak on people that call. And so, um, yeah, I may have to I'm getting background uh, noise. Okay, I think I have to. Ruth, can you please Ruth? mute yourself? Thank you. Um, so, uh, so there's lawyers. They're actually trying to reverse the entire referendum process right now to like take away the law that allows petition gathering to create a referendum. They just want to do away with that completely. And um, in the abortion segment earlier, I think Justin brought up about can these signatures be made public, and I think you had asked as well. So um, in my experience, I've been petitioning um, in, during various campaigns since 2015. I have never, like I can, I, when I, people sign, I guarantee them, look, it just goes straight to the election office. Your, your information will not be shared with anybody. That's something I say with confidence. The city of Atlanta, the city clerk, publicly posted the personal information of the 116,000 people that signed these petitions, All right, This goes this undermines privacy of the vote. I mean, like, okay, granted, it's illegal to do that. I don't know the ex specific legality. I just know the, the the custom. It's when you sign a petition, it goes to the election office. There's no reason. Are, are you saying that they, they published the names and addresses of the yeah, people who the signed? Public. Yeah. So people that might, like, this could jeopardize their jobs. This, like, for whatever reason, like, this, this stop, like, like, that's a huge thing within the voting community. When we talk to John Brady and Ray Lutz about the whole process of transparency and having um, like ballot scans so we can be able to verify the vote. Well, it's really important to have voter privacy because sometimes people vote against what their community pressure is, you know, like maybe they're again, their jobs, their family, whatever it is, they're just their personal views. They don't want 
on display. And that's that's like an American right, you know, to be able to to have a, a private vote. And they publicly I mean, that puts their them in danger. Like there, there's some like and, even with Don's agree. Yeah. The, the whole reason is that he is being persecuted by the courts is because he refused to turn over his client information. Like having this information out there is just extremely dangerous for the people who sign. And so okay. I'll put some um and numbers for people to call um senator warnock senator ossoff these lawyers telling them to not take this case um and the atlanta police foundation which is all funded by corporations is it's it's just disgusting that all democratic city council of atlanta the the georgia democrats they're all behind this and the police will be again will be trained by israeli forces to suppress dissent and i really quickly just want to mention what's happening in tied in with these names being released in Canada, it seems unrelated, but it is. In Canada, they just passed the other day that banks can withhold, can hold on and lock your funds, your banking funds, without a court order. If if you're posting something online that they don't like, with the the trucker convoy, however you feel about them, they were people who donated to the truckers can have their funds frozen, corporate or personal, and that's a new law in Canada now. Imagine if that happened here, that you donate to the cop, the cop city protesters, and now your entire bank account is frozen and you can't feed your children or pay your utility bill. It's a scary, scary, scary stuff. Thank you for hearing me out. Boy, that's brutal. Thank you so much, Wendy. Uh, uh, we haven't worn you out today. Uh, Ruth Strauss, go ahead. Yeah, just two quick things. One is, um, Wendy, that business of doxing uh, signers of petitions, I think uh, you ought to see if you can get the ACLU involved or some legal organization, uh, because I'm sure that that's, you know, some kind of privacy, obviously, thing. The other thing I wanted to say is for everybody to have a heads up about this business of these, uh, you know, police, uh, you know, facilities, because I read recently, and I'm sure you know that there are other states that are using Atlanta as a model. So people be aware, know what's going on in your state and get out ahead of it if you hear anything. Thank you. Absolutely, Ruth. There's one in um, California. I know Ray Lutz a while back had tried to stop a facility like this because again, it's all it's it's literally the whole place is modeled after a city to suppress dissent. And you're right. I, I believe I'm sure I know the ACLU is involved, and I'm sure because this is again, this is Georgia. I'm in Florida. Um, but my thing as well is that I feel like there should be a recall petition for the commissioners, like just get them out of office, vote them all out. I think that should be the next petition, in my opinion, as a legal strategy, um, hoping that they're working on all avenues. OK, we're again, Wendy, thank you so much. Uh, very, very disturbing. Uh, we're at 259 uh, California time. We were about to head into nuclear power. I did want to mention my buddy Dave Saltman is on the line. David, are you with us? Um, Dave Saltman and I talk a lot about the Middle East, and um, I've avoided talking about it um, today, um, but Dave sent me an article that I found truly astounding, um, and if we can put it in the chat, Dave, um, there you are. If you can put that article that you sent me, Dave, the link in the chat, uh, that would be really interesting, I think, for people. Maybe next week we'll stick our toe in and talk about the Middle East. But Harley, I, I sent you I sent you three. Which one are you talking about? Uh, me, well, if you can put all three in the chat, that would be great. OK, I'm not sure how to do that. Um, send a, just send a, 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 the link. Do you have Steve Caruso's uh, email? 
No. All right. Well, send it to me and I'll forward it to him and we'll okay. put it in the chat. We'll do. Okay. Thank you so much, Dave. Okay. Sure. All right. At the end of this hour, uh, we're now going to transition um, to nuclear power and to Diablo Canyon. Thank you again, Wendy. Thank you, Lynn Cherry, if you can ever uh, get your video right. Uh, Steve, you did have um, Lynn Cherry's book. Can, I sh can we show Lynn Cherry's book again um, real quick? That would be great. Um, uh, Lynn is uh, blanked on the screen there. Uh, this is one of the great uh, environmental books of all time. It's The Great K-Pop Tree by Lynn Cherry. Thank you, uh, Steve, for not showing us Amazon. Um, uh, and uh, I highly recommend, especially for kids, that you get this book. Um, and um, if Lynn, Lynn is visible, another time we'll talk to her. But um, uh, this is a this is right up there with with uh, uh, the Warax and any other environmental ch uh, kids book you'll ever see. Okay, thank you so much. All right, we're going to segue now into a, an hour long discussion on nuclear power on Diablo Canyon. And we need to strategize exactly how we can win. Um, no one needs to tell us. We have more than 50 people on the call. We are being live streamed. This will be reproduced, rebroadcast at PRN Thursday night. Um, and um, uh, we, we are in the throes now, as many of you know, and there's Kevin Camps, of a massive, uh, we're also joined by Robert Freeling, uh, one of the great uh, experts on renewable energy, especially in California. We are in the throes of two major uh, attacks by the federal government uh, and then certainly the state governments of, of California and Michigan to, in Michigan's case, revive a nuclear plant that's already been shut. And in California, to continue operations at the Diablo Canyon reactors, which were uh, an agreement was signed, um, a legally binding agreement, we thought, in 2016, to shut the two reactors at Diablo Canyon. And we're trying to figure out how to win. I mean, you know, um, I, I was greatly inspired. My first demonstration in 1962, we, we picketed a roller rink. Uh, I was a junior in high school. I was captain of the tennis team and um, highly competitive. And I, we picketed it and we won. <laughs> That's why I became an activist. Because, you know, in my world, it's just another sport. But uh, here we are 60 years later. So now we're not like um, uh, talking about how to shut the Apple Canyon for our, well, we are talking about it for our health, but it's not an academic exercise. We want to win. Now, Anna Georgie's on the call from Western Massachusetts. And in 1973, we were living on a communal farm, organic farm in the town of Montague, and the, the utility came in and said they were going to build two nuclear plants four miles from our house. And that's how no, the term no nukes got coined. And um, we stopped them. We beat them. They never came in. They never, they never got their bulldozers in. So now we got these two reactors that everybody knows is awful in, um, in um, California and the Palisades of Michigan. We've got uh, Kevin Camps on the line. Uh, Kevin, uh, you've been in, the, in this movement for a long, 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 long time. Uh, can you tell us, Kevin, uh, how we're going to shut Palisades and what's been the key to our success at shutting other reactors? Let me name some. Montague, Yankee Row, Vermont Yankee, Maine Yankee, um, Indian Point now, um, you know, uh, and, and of course, San Onofre. 
And we've just got a great new film on San Onofre, San Onofre Syndrome. We have the actual filmmakers on with us, Jim and Mary Beth, and people from San Onofre. It's a huge victory. But Kevin, we'll give the start to you. And then everybody else, raise your hand. And we're going to go through here and figure out how to shut these reactors. So go ahead, Kevin. Hey, everybody. Hi. Um, I don't know. The key, I think, is to fight them with everything we have at every twist and turn and take advantage of every opportunity. And uh, at Palisades, like Harvey said, it's unprecedented to bring back a dead reactor to life. So we've been calling it a zombie reactor. What we just got a hold of through a Freedom of Information Act request to the state of Michigan is a nearly 1,000 page FOIA response. But the most important part of the FOIA response is Holtec's application to the US Department of Energy. It's dated July 5th, 2022. So yes, over a year ago, but it's very revealing. And there's some really loaded language in there. Um, for one thing, Holtec sees Palisades restart not as a national symbol, but as an international symbol. And they actually use some really hyperbolic language. They call it a shining talisman for the nuclear power industry worldwide. And they've even said it would reverse the shutdown trend in Western Europe. So they didn't say Germany and France, but that's what they meant. And they certainly meant it would reverse the shutdown trend of reactors here in the United States. And it's true, there was a record-breaking number of atomic reactor shutdowns between 2013 and 2023, more than a dozen, I believe, if you count Canada as well. And you know, San Onofre is an amazing example where the company screwed up, it got greedy, it tried to run brand new steam generators way too hard, put way too many tubes in there to try to maximize electricity and maximize profit. And they damaged their own brand new steam generators. And <laughs> a lot of groups jumped in. I mean, the list is a long one, but local grassroots groups like San Clemente Green, national groups like Friends of the Earth, uh, expert witnesses like John Large from the United Kingdom and Arnie Gunderson from the US explained to the public and the media just what this meant. And you know, the NRC was gonna do the wrong thing at San Onofre. They were gonna let the company run the reactors at something like 70% power levels and call it safe with severely degraded steam generators that could cause a meltdown. And the good guys stopped it, you know? So a tremendous victory back in June of 2013. So at Palisades, uh, they don't just have bad steam generators, they have a bad, closure head on the vessel. That's a Diablo, I'm sorry, a Davis-Bessey uh, pathway to meltdown. They have the worst embrittled reactor pressure vessel in the country. Uh, a close second is Point Beach in Wisconsin, also on Lake Michigan. So Lake Michigan is wedged between the two most embrittled reactor pressure vessels in the country. And then a close number three is Diablo Canyon unit number one. And some other badly embrittled reactors included Indian Point Unit 3, but thank goodness it's shut. And then Beaver Valley in Pennsylvania is another one that's bad and it's still operating. So an incredible revelation in this um, application by Holtec was that, yeah, they're a 
national leader in decommissioning, and they're very proud of their accomplishments, breaking records. They're so fast at what they do. But they said the real motivation for acquiring these shutdown nuclear plants was not decommissioning per se, although they love to raid the decommissioning trust funds. It was to bank sites for future development of small modular reactors. And if you're following Holtec's behavior at Oyster Creek, New Jersey, a few years ago, they floated the trial balloon at Palisades last year, at Big Rock Point last year. So obviously there's a pattern where instead of decommissioning, now they're talking about small modular reactors, but they said it so blatantly in this secret application that we were never supposed to see. They said, you know, they didn't say Indian Point, New York. They didn't say Pilgrim, Massachusetts. They didn't say future sites they're going to get. But they said, every one of these sites that we get, if the stars align, we're going to build small modular reactors. And so another revelation we learned about was $800 million more in federal bailouts than had ever been talked about before at Palisades. So the grand total now is $3 billion in Department of Energy bailouts, another $300 million from the state of Michigan. That's $3.3 billion just for the zombie reactor restart at Palisades. And the big one, though, is four small modular reactors at Palisades for $7.4 billion in DOE money. Grand total $10.7 billion in federal and state taxpayer giveaways to Holtec just at Palisades. And another revelation, we didn't know what a gouge the past power purchase agreement was between Entergy and Consumers Energy, but now we do because Holtec wants to do the same thing all over again for 25 more years. And it turns out to be $412.5 million in annual revenues at Palisades. Wow. Wait, you went, you went dark here. Kevin, you got muted somehow. Um, okay, I'm trying to unmute you. There we go. Okay, so Kevin. Yeah, yeah somebody's um, muting me, not me. Okay, well, everybody should know, of course, of Kevin. And let me put in two um, uh, large um, uh, uh, topics to oversight before we go. I want to mention Carl Grossman on, the, on, on Long Island was instrumental in shutting the Shoreham plant. And Anna Georgie in Western Mass was instrumental and, and wrote a book, the book, uh, No Nukes, compiled the original compendium, No Mooks, and was uh, instrumental in keeping Montague from ever being built. Two factors here. First of all, the military dimension. You know, the, 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 and Tatanka Bricker is a great, a great pioneer in this thought. The, the nuclear power industries, we're, right, we're scratching our heads here. Why are they keeping these nuclear reactors going? Economically, they're insane. Uh, they, they cause global warming. They make no sense whatsoever, even for the utilities in many cases. What is the big deal to keep them open? This, it has to be the military. These, these reactors are, are part of the military complex. Now, we talked last week with Pat Morita from Ohio, and to understand the depth of this, we got to look at what's happening at Piketon in Portsmouth in southern Ohio. The traditional enrichment uh, facilities there are making plans to they're, they're expanding and they're making plans to take more nuclear fuel more spent nuclear fuel down there what are they going to do with it they're going to produce nuclear weapons uh depleted uranium 
uh, plutonium. So the, 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 in, in our, you know, innocent uh, uh, walk in the park uh, mentality here, we are, we're scratching our heads. And this is the quote from Macron. Without civil, uh, uh, the prime minister of France, without civil nuclear power, there is no military nuclear power. And without military nuclear power, there is no civil nuclear power. It couldn't be more clear. So, you know, when we're wondering why um, Gavin Newsom jumps in to keep Diablo Canyon open, um, we have to, at some point in time, deal with the reality of the military use of, of commercial nuclear power for personnel and for fuel and for infrastructure. And if we start shutting these commercial plants, the military is going to be, you know, uh, in, in a tough spot for getting uh, keeping their, their uh, a chain alive. The second overview piece is embrittlement. Um, I had a brief conversation with uh, Arnie Gunderson. The embrittlement issue is a little more complicated at GE reactors than at Westinghouse, but it's clear enough. And there's no doubt that every nuclear plant in the country is going to have to refuel within 18 months or less. And all these reactors now are 40, or almost all of them are 40 years or older. So um, maybe we need an embrittlement alliance to deal with the uh, nationwide, with this particular uh, instance uh, of, 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 uh, of embrittlement, which affects all the reactors more clearly at the half that are Westinghouse, but nonetheless, there, it's an issue with General Electric reactors as well. So, um, uh, okay, Steve, uh, oh, look at, there's you go. Uh, all this money going into Piketon, uh, that's very, very troubling and very clear. And thankfully we have Pat Morita uh, who's on the case there to explain what's going on. But I, I do wanna start very quickly. The question is, uh, having said that, how do we win? So I wanna hear from the San Onofre people who have had the most recent major victory. What was the turning point uh, in shutting San Onofre? I, we know we still dealing with the um, um, waste issue as per uh, Mary Beth and, and Jim's excellent film. But what was the key to shutting um, these two reactors in California and how does it apply to Diablo Canyon? Does anybody from there, from the San Onofre five? Okay, Donna Gilmore, go ahead, Donna, please. Um, well, yes, the one of the keys was to get the um, the city council and the businesses were believing Edison when they said, we're going to have blackouts if we don't have those reactors running. And <clears throat> so um, Barbara, uh, Barbara George had a handout that said, we have a 40% surplus of power without any of the California reactors, without Diablo Canyon, without San Onofre, we had a 40% surplus. So we were not gonna have blackouts. So I took Barbara's chart, made it simpler, simple visual with the, with the public utility reference. And we took that to city council meetings and, and showed with the state's own evidence that we would be fine without San, um, uh, uh, San Onofre, and that made a major difference. And we kept it very uh, bipartisan. Um, safety is everybody's problem. Uh, we did not talk about renewables. 
We wanted to have the Republicans and the Democrats, and we didn't want to muddy up the safety issue with an issue we were going to get pushback on. So we kept it very simple, speaking to what the people cared about. So we were able to get city council's resolutions passed to, to shut it down, keep it shut down. Um, and that got us media, free media attention because we weren't able to get media to get the word out. So we were able to spread the word. We, we ended up having a, a big donor and Laguna and Laguna Beach brought in Friends of the Earth and then we worked with them. And then somewhere along the line, we had, we had Dave Freeman um, and he was uh, able to convince um, the governor Edison between the two of them uh, to not restart the plant. But there was a lot of pressure coming from a lot of different directions. It took a multi, you know, you want to hold a stool up, you need a lot of legs. So we had, we had it coming at them from, from every direction. Uh, we also had the luck or unluck of, of San Onofre having the worst safety record of all the nuclear facilities in the country. And I, I took the, the safety allocation data from the NRC website and made a chart of it, a simple visual. And then we showed that to every city council. So when Edison got up there to say that everything's safe and people can see they have the worst, worst safety record in the country, you know, it shocked their credibility. So that, that helped make it easier. Um, so that, so that you're, was- you're, you're saying that um, when you put the coup de grace on San Onofre, it was shut at that time. Um, well, it, it, we were we were working on this before the shutdown. We started working on this before the shutdown. Okay, we had we had before the steam generator failed. We we were already working on it. Um, the issue, and then okay. and then at some point, you know, the reactor shut down and they had an inspection. So it actually started. It didn't. It wasn't over till after the shutdown, and then we focused on keeping it shut down. Um, what, NRC, what kind of inspection? Of course, we're asking for an inspection at Diablo. What kind of inspection did you have at San Onofre? Um, they, that was a, uh, when it shut down. It was the steam generators. They inspected. Uh, well, we had a, we had a radiation release from the Unit Three steam generator, and so that. You know, that shut it down. And then they had a, an NRC inspection of both, the, and reactor two was down at that time. So we had both reactors were down at the same time. Number two was down for, uh, for an inspection and, and fuel, you know, re, you know, refueling. And then, and then three went offline. And the state of California never prepared for both reactors to be offline at the same time. That they, they were shocked that that happened. So well, how did the governor? How did the governor react to all this? Um, Dave Freeman, who was working on Friends of the Earth, he worked. He was working behind the scenes. He had worked for the governor before, so we were lucky to have an expert that the governor trusted and would believe. One of the problems we have now is getting experts, you know, that they will believe. You know, like at Diablo Canyon. The safety committee there, the three experts hired by the state of California, they're playing cover for PG&E. They're covering for them. So having having an expert that, you know, the people in power that can negotiate, say, with PG&E to shut it down, 
Um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure we have that. We have a lot of. In. Okay. In here. Yeah. Let, let's um. Yeah. Somebody's yeah. talking. Harvey, we can hear. Harvey. Harvey. The one of the answers to your question was we we turned a corner when we took a policy of of, of contacting, which was a, a really aggressive uh, action to contact our elected officials. At the in, at the at the city level, it was the most effective because these are people we go shopping with. They're at our, they're at our school meetings. There are people that live next door at the state level, at the federal level. These people are too far removed from the public. Your, your, your power as a, as an activated uh, populace is to use the people that are closest to you that you've already built trust with. The, the, the key issue in all of this was, 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 building a network of trust of people that all shared a common message and to simplify a very complex problem that's over 70 years old. Most people are unaware of, of, of the nuclear problem at these nuclear power plants. And so educating the public with experts showing up at city council meetings, as Donna said, People like S. David Freeman, who, who ran the L.A. Department of Water and Power and Tennessee Valley Authority, when they spoke, they, they, their words carried weight. They were, they were uh, respected opinions about the dangers of these facilities. The, well, who's the counterpart now? I mean, Dave, unfortunately, is gone. And um, who, who's going who's gonna to play that role now at Diablo? Well, the... the one of the key moments was when we decided to uh, stop being a uh, a group of informed activists to being a group of informed federal regulators with independent voices. And I think um, mayors and county supervisors and eventually the prime minister of Japan came to speak. We made sure we had a lot of press coverage when he came to speak. We, we, we funded him, we flew him here to California and we told him to explain to the public what a nuclear accident at a nuclear power plant facility is like for surrounding communities. If you don't clarify what that is to people, you're just, you're, you're talking amongst yourselves because you're, 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 uh, we are a group of concerned citizens with information that's not being transferred to other powerful voices in our communities. If those other powerful voices and interests like landowners, universities, hospitals, and so forth, don't understand what a nuclear accident is. And so the prime minister, in a nutshell, in his discussions, we did many conferences with him. He just simply said, I almost lost Japan as a viable nation, not because of the reactors, but because of losing control of, of the spent nuclear fuel. And he had said, had we lost control of the spent nuclear fuel, I think it was on reactor four, he said, we would have had a hemispherical catastrophe thousands of times worse than the current Fukushima disaster. Now that trickles off to landowners, that trickles off to elected officials, certainly trickled off to 
Southern California Edison's board of directors that were listening in on this conference that we had. And I think that was a turning point too. It was, there were many turning points, but I think that was the one just a couple of days before the announcement on Wall Street that Edison was going to permanently close the San Onofre site. And that was the unassailable voices coming forward with clarity that 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 they were they were comments about impacts as large as losing Japan as a viable nation from one industrial accident, that clarifies what all this fight is about. We can get down into the weeds about embrittlement and all these things, but the surrounding population that's busy with their own lives doesn't have the time to go as deep as all of us have gone in these issues. And so the clarifying what's at stake and what could be lost makes it makes the discussion more real. If you well, can we uh, think about bringing uh... Not Ocon to San Luis Obispo? Would that make I sense? Great, I think that's a great idea. I saw in Jim and Mary Beth's fabulous film uh, that, that his testimony was astounding. One of the, the, the interesting notes is that you're right, it was the spent fuel pool at Unit 4, and Unit 4 was shut at the time. There was no meltdown at Unit 4. He, he said that the only hydrogen. reason we didn't lose Japan in surrounding areas and possibly even portions of the United States, it wasn't because of the workers on site that kept the fuel cool. It was a it was an aftershock that jostled open a valve that allowed coolant water in the last hours before they lost control of that fuel to flood that that spent fuel pool for with coolant. They were getting wow, the I've never, I've never heard that order. one. I'm I've the never Prime heard Minister that. was getting ready to issue an evacuation order out 160 miles, which included Tokyo and a population of 55 million people. He said, where would I send 55 million people? Where would they go? Gaza. That was the reality of Fukushima that you never heard about. He's, we talked about it. We spent many, many days with him. And those are the kinds of facts that need to leak out. It wouldn't just be the surrounding area around Diablo that would be wiped out. It would be a path across the United States, across the Atlantic into Europe that would be that would be impacted by a, a spent fuel accident at Diablo Canyon triggered by a big earthquake. And I want to say one thing. We went to a San Diego Association of Geologists meeting before the shutdown. And Edison had hosted this meeting and they wanted to get feedback from the geologists about the, their, their take on the risks of uh, seismic risk to San Onofre. At the end of the meeting, there was a question and answer session and one guy got up and he said, I did all the seismic fault mapping around Diablo Canyon. And if we knew that there was a fault there, and we knew where the starting point, but we didn't know where the finished ending point of that fault line is, we left it off of the map. And the risk assessment was based off of this map that had all these fault lines missing. Jesus. Those kinds of comments shift the discussion away from safe operation to what the hell are we doing thinking about restarting this or keeping this facility running? And those well, can are the we, can we, information. Can we replicate this? Does it make sense to try and replicate what you did at San Onofre, at, at San Luis Obispo? I know that, that that Donna and myself, we we spent 
a dozen years, you know, it, full time where there's a lot of groundwork done. Donna's got a wealth of information. Just her information alone is enough to shut down Diablo. There's, there's a wealth of information from all the people that got involved in this. Ace Hoffman is a wealth of information too. I know he's on. Well, you guys all need to, you all need to move to San Luis Obispo and let's get this done. Um, uh, Torgan yeah. Tatanka, who's actually in the vicinity up there, has a hand. But we need to we need to apply this. This is amazing. Go ahead, Tatanka. Yeah, I'm sorry. So so what needs to be done is you need to identify who all the key interests are involved in Diablo, and you know the key one is the public, and they're always marginalized and left out. It's very important to have voices at microphones. But who are all the key interest. The university seems to be a big one. If you were to just quantify what the land improvements are, what the economic uh, significance is to the, to, to the local community, to have that university and all the students that it hosts there, that's a huge number. It's okay. much larger than, than, than anything that Diablo Canyon can claim as an economic benefit for the area. If you, if, 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 okay. if you explain that those things could be lost in a few hours with an accident at, at Diablo Canyon that shifts the conversation in the direction of public interest and protecting land improvements, which is what everybody's interest is, our safety and protecting our, 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 our homes and our families and our properties. Morgan, did you, uh, you know, the investment part of that where the, the, the stock prices and that issue after yeah, the, there, there was a there, the reason why Edison announced the closure on Friday, at the opening bell at, at, at on Wall Street was they were afraid of investor flight. The the approaching them with unassailable voices that were that were very critical of nuclear power and especially damaged nuclear reactors being restarted, or in your case, embrittled reactors being being uh, considered for relicensing. That 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 erodes public uh, confidence in the whole scheme of Diablo Canyon that this is worth worth keeping open and, and operating upwind of the continental United States. That's okay. the discussion. That's a scale that you got to shift. This well, maybe discussion. we should think about uh, bringing him back. Let's let's get to Tonka and then Linda Seeley. In San, Torgan, that's really powerful stuff, and Donna. So let's move move with it. Uh, Tatanka and then Linda. Thank you. Thank you so much, Torgan, for that report. I mean, I see a roadmap now, and I, I was echoing the same thing that uh, Harvey was talking earlier. And I have some things I want to say, but I want to yield my time to Linda Seeley, who has lived in this area far longer than Carol and I have. We just moved here a few months ago, and so part of this has to be tailored to us. We have a timeline. <laughs> a short timeline on trying not to have it reopen. So Linda, why don't you take it and, and talk about the timelines we're dealing with. And then I love having the prime minister of Japan, but we've got to, yes, the university, yes, the land values, yes, the, the whole notion. I mean, I've got a lot of ideas, but I want to save it till after you talk. Go ahead, Linda. Go ahead, Linda. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, good to see you, Torgan and Donna um, and Ace. Jim, Jim and Mary Beth, and we have Ace Hoffman on as well. Yeah and Tatanka and Jim and Mary Beth. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, Mothers for Peace, you know, we've been approaching this through the courts. And I think that it's time that we do, I mean, if we could have a public forum with someone like Naoto Khan, 
and Greg Yasko. Um, and uh, and Peter, well, Peter, have, Bradford. Peter, Peter Bradford. Peter Bradford is our, already working with us every day. Um, so we we have put all, all of our t- time and resources now into hiring, for instance, expert witnesses. Number one, them uh, like the sort of the most highly esteemed um, metal metals expert in the world, whose name is um, Diggy Dig McDonald, and um, he has written a report uh, to that's been submitted to the California um, Public Utilities Commission and the NRC talking about the embrittlement at Diablo Canyon and how it is severe and it probably reached its um the like the tolerance that it could take at maybe last year or he's it's like give or take some number of years but it's it's a very dangerous situation and unit 1 the unit that we're really worried about is unit 1 because of the components of the the metals that are in the reactor vessel. And so we the the independent safety committee at our urging has hired an independent um, metals expert also. And we want um and his name is Mark Kirk, K-I-R-K, Donna, for you to um investigate if you wish. Um, he seems to be, you know, a straight up guy. Um, and what we want is for Digby McDonald and Mark Kirk to talk to each other and compare notes on this embrittlement issue because they, they are the ones who actually are experts in this very obscure, um, science that is impossible for uh, like a lay person to understand truly. Um, and well, let me just throw in real quick, as mentioned before, we want to have a national, I think we need a national group that will focus the embrittlement issue on all the reactors in the country because they're all, except for the two at Voktel, they're all embrittled and they Absolutely. all have to shut at some point for refueling. Absolutely. So we can have a subcommittee uh, and talk to Arnie. And and you know have a subcommittee on nothing but embrittlement in old reactors to to swoop in when they refuel. Just a sideline there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. But right now, Unit One is down. It's it's stopped for refueling, and we have petitioned um, the governor, and we have a petition for the public to sign that I posted on the chat here, but. And, and we have also written letters and we're talking to state legislators and um, to our local representatives about forcing PG&E to, to draw a, what's called a coupon from the inside of the reactor vessel to test it for embrittlement because we know that it's embrittled because they haven't tested anything for over 20 years for one thing. And then there's also another test, an ultrasonic test of the interior of the reactor vessel that they have to do that they have not done for 15 years. And so we those things have to be done now while this reactor vessel is down. So how do we force this to happen? And how do we force it 
to me the key to keep a Diablo from shutting. Kevin, you have real quick information on Mark Kirk. Kevin Camps, you 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 said something about Mark Kirk. Hold on, you got I gotta mute you. Go ahead. It's not me doing it. Um, yeah, go ahead, real quick. I hope that Mark Kirk has had a change of heart. He was our adversary when he was the top technical staffer at the NRC on this issue at Palisades. They would fly him out here to try to calm everybody down. And I hope he's had a change of heart. I would just, you know, caution everybody, Linda and everybody, just to be careful and know his history. I'd be happy to tell you our experience going back bet, 15, 20 yeah. years with the guy. Same with Digby McDonald. He is no friend um, of, of the anti-nuclear people. He is He's pro-nuclear, but he did the calculations on Diablo Canyon. He was like, he was stunned. Um, and I'm hoping that- what? Go ahead. I, I was going to say one thing about Mark Kirk is he sometimes give the man a microphone. I mean, one time in a technical meeting, he said, pressurize thermal shock. You don't even need the pressure. I forget which one it was. The pressure or the temperature was all you needed to fracture the wall clean through. You didn't need the other one. And uh, so he just put that out there. Like, if it's bad enough, you don't need both. You just need the one. Right. Your, well, we, that's the kind of stuff. We, we need to turn that into political clout now. And that, that, that's what we have to do. And that's what I'm thinking about what uh, Torgan was talking about, about having uh, a public, like a big public meeting here to let the public in on this because nobody really knows about it uh, up here in San Luis Obispo. I mean, all of us do, of course, but the greater public, and as you said, the university, the our uh, Cal Poly is probably the most conservative university in California. Um, it's the whitest, it's the richest and most conservative. And it's like probably oh, over half of the funding comes from um, the war industries because it's a, uh, a polytechnic university. And so their funding comes from Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin and all that. And it's just flowing. Well, we're gonna, whatever we do right now within the time frame of, of the um, refueling at Diablo is gotta be probably gonna have to be done by Zoom. But if we can maybe get NatoCon and, and put together and these other people and put together a major Zoom within the next couple of weeks, uh, I can get it on radio and we can um, uh, maybe move from there. Tatanka, you wanted to talk again, and we got Donna Gilmore has a hand, and Wendy, go ahead, Tatanka. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, we gotta, we've got to get the conversation out there about the direness of the situation. You know, it's not like this is this is critical. We know there's 13 nuclear faults going underneath underneath that power plant. We know that the embrittlement issue won't cause a, a very likely won't cause a meltdown. It'll cause an explosion, an explosion. Yeah. And so, and in, in either case, you know, you've got all of LA County before you get the rest of the nation in Europe, you've got so many people. And I just keep sparking off things. Don't we have some sort of laws that people follow in the state to talk about 
earthquake preparedness? Is this a part of it? Does anybody know? Is anybody prepared if there's an earthquake? What happens if what happens in Diablo, which we can say with some certainty that at some point an earthquake fault is going to trigger this worst of all possible situations. And it could happen today. It could happen 10 years from now. You know, I mean, we really need to talk about, uh, we might even have, I mean, I'm thinking zany now because I'm trying to keep a sense of humor. We need to have a contest. No, we don't think we're number three. We think we're number one on embrittlement because we haven't been tested for 20 years. We want to be number one. Then we can have all the people that shut down number two, number one and number two help shut this one down. You know, I mean, I gets, it gets weird. You know, what are the Vegas odds of a student not being able to get through grad school before an earthquake? Or the kids. I mean, th this is where I'm going. But we have to stay focused on the on as was revealed here on what the facts are. Get the university involved. Get get people involved where they are, and go local and spread out. And and okay. yeah, get something happening before this reopen date. And the prime minister of Japan would be fantastic. Well, but, maybe, obviously we wouldn't be able to get him there in person on time, but maybe we can get him on on a Zoom. That would be. I don't know. Or, or maybe he comes at a later time. I don't know. We we just have to figure. Donna and Torgan, do you have connections that will go to um, Wendy and Myra? Adana? Yeah, I think, um, I think it needs to be much simpler. What everyday people care about, they care about not having a blackout. That's what they care about. They're not in oh, embrittlement. What's that? Earthquake. Well, we live in earthquake land. We're desensitized to earthquake. Well, we just hope it doesn't happen so we can have hope. But you, you tell people they're going to have blackouts because of how unreliable Diablo Canyon is, and that's something they can relate to and care about, and it's a very simple message. And we have enough evidence, the government's own evidence, uh, to show that. So just think of what people care about personally. You know, it's kind of part of selling, because that mm -hmm. was a big turning point. When I tried to do... Uh, when I was worked on the initiative to shut down both reactors, the you know the state initiative, we went on the street. Everybody says, "Yeah, I hope we don't have an earthquake." The earthquake story didn't move people, but when we showed what a horrible safety record, and we showed that we, we were going to have, we, we don't need it, you know, we, we don't need it, uh, and and now we got a case where we can show that there there's going to be blackouts if you're relying on Diablo. I mean, they have parts there that they 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 run it to the ground, even with nuclear. And and we have their reputation, uh, PG&E's reputation, of basically starting fires and burning people alive. And and this is who we're trusting. I think it needs to be simpler messaging. It not. I wouldn't rely too much on the earthquake. It didn't work at all. Thank uh, you. Okay. Can we, okay, can we hear from Jorgen and, yeah, just, and Linda? I want to say that we. We hosted Neoticon in San Diego. We hosted him in New York. We hosted him in Boston. And we did five conferences in Japan. You can get a person like that to speak on your behalf with an unassailable voice. We did it. And if you're serious about doing it at Diablo, we can talk about that. Um, yes, but we need, to, we need to talk about budgeting and time frame. So um, uh, we'll we'll talk to you again. Uh, that th this isn't the time to get into specifics. Real, sure. thank you though. That, I, let, I would I agree if we can get him here on site and then zoom it and then we'll figure out the funding. Go ahead, Linda. Okay. Well, let's talk further about that. 
Um, when, can uh, I bring up one more one more point? Real um, quick, Donna. There, you know, I mean, this ties into the new reactor because there's actually legislation in California to start bringing in SMRs, and the the new scale reactor is the first reactor that's been approved na nationwide. I mean, by the NRC, I mean, and but they approved a reactor with bad steam generators. So I think it's really important for people to know we cannot trust the NRC to protect our safety. And I think the San Onofre Syn Syndrome movie does an excellent job of telling regular people you can't trust the NRC to protect our safety. And everybody, the elected officials, the public, they're counting on the NRC to do their job and they really don't know that they're not doing it. So this, this movie is really good on that point. So on okay, the SMRs, okay. if, if, if people knew that the the first reactor, small module reactor that the NRC approved has bad steam generators and they approved it anyway. What does that say about the NRC's credibility? What does that say about okay. a company that would submit a design with defective reactors? And that's what shuts San Onofre down. So let me, I think, let me, let me, you know, I think it ties together. We want them to oppose. You okay, know, but, well, but the question then is, how, how okay. do we turn how do we turn that into a, a public um, uh, presence that can flip the switch? That that's what we really need to figure out. Uh, I want to call on Robert Freeling really quickly because he can very quickly tell make it clear. Uh, he's got the numbers. He's done the presentations that we do not in any way, shape, or form. Not only don't we need Diablo Canyon, but the power from Diablo Canyon is a detriment. Can you speak to that real quickly, Robert? Yeah, there are a couple sides to that question. One is that we don't need it. Uh, Donna raised how um, Barbara George apparently shared with you the, the enormous surplus that the state had a decade ago when, when San Onofre closed. We, we, we are in the same situation today. And if you're interested, I can share with you public documents that demonstrate this. Uh, the North American Electric Liability Council puts out an annual report showing how much um, resources there are in different regions of the country. And they showed California with a 35% surplus above the forecast peak demand. The state um, adopts a standard of about 16% at this point as a reserve. So we're way above that. And Diablo Canyon is a little less than 5%. So if you got rid of Diablo Canyon, we'd still have a 30% uh, reserve. Um, the state, however, is quaking. The agencies are quaking at the, at the feet of the governor. And so they're trying to come up any opportunity they can to use the word shortfall, even though they're doing pretzels around it, saying, yeah, we have plenty of power to keep the lights on this summer and for the foreseeable future. But they say, well, if something else happened and then something else and something else and something else, then we could have a shortfall. Um, they gave the example of last September when we had an extreme heat wave. Um, and you may remember the power did not go off, did not go out last September. And they said that was equivalent to a 26% reserve margin, meaning they're effectively acknowledging that we have this huge uh, surplus reserve. Um, okay, so we, all right, that's good. So that's one Robert's... side. I want to answer the other half of your question, if you Okay, would, go ahead, Robert. Which is how it interferes with um, renewable energy. This was... Uh, PG&E's own testimony in shutting down Diablo Canyon in 2016, uh, they stated that 
continuing to operate Diablo Canyon after 2025 would result in the curtailment, meaning the cutting off of somewhere between 800 and 2400 gigawatt hours a year of solar energy. And that's because they can cut down the output of solar plants, but they can't do that for Diablo Canyon. Diablo Canyon is inflexible. It's like a bulldozer and it's going to push any other type of generation out of the way. So that's equivalent to offsetting somewhere between 5 and 15% of the annual generation. Now, the fact is we're having far more solar energy coming online than they ever anticipated back then. So that's, there's more opportunity to interfere. So but Robert is a great expert on this, and there's absolutely no doubt that the two things that he says and can back up are true, and we got them from them, him, which is A, California has more than enough power, and B, the power from Diablo pushes cheaper stuff offline. We just had an instance in Finland. They built this Okuyuto reactor for 15 years, spent, I don't know, 15 billion, 20 billion euros on it, and they brought it online in May of this year. And before the end of May, they had to shut it back down um, or cut it way back because there was a massive influx uh, of wind and uh, hydropower. And they yeah. couldn't even begin to compete. So it's the same situation with Diablo. Thank you for that, Robert. And remember, we're on solid ground when we make that argument. So um, absolutely. Uh, okay, great. Thank you so much. Our right, very quickly now, Wendy Myla and Jennifer Tanner has joined us. Go ahead, Wendy, please, quickly. Thank you very much. Um, two really quick points. Um, I just want to reiterate uh, to include, you have to include the youth groups and the youth climate influencers because they have just been gobbled up by the cultists. Um, just include them in the conversation to debunk some of the myths. Um, let them know it's not carbon neutral. It's uninsurable. Again, the percentage of actual um, use of sunrise movement, water keepers, zero hour, and just maybe Google some of the um, uneth the planet is another one you guys need to get to them and the other one i just want to say quickly is um biochemist professors biochemistry professors and oncologists need to be testifying in part of year i just really quick anecdote it always stayed with me um i was late going to college i was in my 30s and i was taking a biochemistry class when fukushima happened i had this the, one of the best professors i ever had was from nigeria biochemistry professor very very stoic stoic man and i could tell he was shaken to his core and he would not answer questions during class about Fukushima. So I waited after class and I, I stayed there and I was like, tell me what's going on. And he said to me, the Japanese race will never be the same. You guys need to get the biochemistry professors involved because their hearts are in it and the oncologists. Thank you so much. Thank you, Wendy. Very good. Appreciate that. Myla, go ahead. And then Jennifer Tanner. I, just quickly, I wanted to say, <clears throat> just so listeners uh, are aware Diablo does not sit on 13 uh, fault lines, but it's in the vicinity. There's a, a, a small radius, um, and there is a, it sits in an area that is riddled with earthquake faults, but they're not all directly under the plant. Um, just wanted to correct that. And I think that uh, it's important to, to what Donna Gilmore said about the rationale that had con convinced local leaders uh, near San Onofre uh, that, um, that they had to keep the plant open in, in order to avoid blackouts, et cetera. The, that's the same rationale that's being used by Gavin Newsom now to extend the life of Diablo. And I was wondering if Linda 
could talk about the uh, the the uh, California Energy Commission study that left out uh, wind and solar uh, in their study about uh, replacing the energy from from uh, Diablo. Yeah, um, that. There was a bill, SB 846, that was responsible for keeping Diablo Canyon open that was passed by the legislature last August, in August of 22. In that bill, it said uh, there were certain criteria that they spelled out that had to be met. One of them was that the California Energy Commission had to do a study of how much re how much renewable energy is available to the state of California um, to see if we actually do need Diablo Canyon. And turn, so uh, we were greatly anticipating this study. It was published on um, the 26th of September, I think, um, maybe a little bit before then. But, and it was supposed to be this really robust report assessing everything that was all the energy that was available. We get the report. Number one, it's a, um, a preliminary report. Number two, they literally, what Myla just said, they said, well, we can't count solar in this thing because, you know, solar might run into some supply uh, line difficulties. Oh, and we can't count wind in this either because, you know, wind um, has had problems. It's a, uh, uh, the workers are non-union and they may not be able to do what they need to do. They left out, they left out practically all um, renewable power sources. And then they came to the conclusion that gee whiz, we need Diablo Canyon because, well, of course we need Diablo Canyon. If we don't have any wind, we don't have any solar and we don't have any uh, hydrothermal. Oh, and they, oh no, they didn't count, um, hydropower either because, well, you know, we might not ever get any more rain. So it it was a ludicrous report. And that's what they submitted as, you know, their report to the California Public Utilities Commission, which is um, going to base okay. its decision on that report. So we've challenged that at the CPUC, as have quite a few other groups. But it's let me ask you, Linda, at the at the mothers, what do you most need right now? We need people to call every one of you to call your state representatives, both your state senator and your state assembly person, and say, look, Diablo Canyon needs to be unit one needs to be inspected. And we want you to do whatever you can do to make sure that the inside of the unit one is inspected now during this outage. Yet that that hmm. That is the one thing that everybody on this call can do today. Okay. Thank you, Jennifer Thank Tanner, you. Carl Grossman, and Justin. Jennifer and then Carl. Yeah, so I think Dr. Jim Stewart is on the call. He and I together uh, wrote a letter um, that uh, 120 groups have signed. That pretty much is bringing in like 120,000 people. Um, we are about to send this letter to all 120 legislators, we were just waiting to send it. And it talks about everything we've been talking about, that the bill that Newsom strong-armed everybody to sign, um, he promised certain things. We're going to do this test and this test and this test and PG&E isn't doing it. We're saying, 
in this 50-day window where we're refueling, we demand that we have these tests. So that's all in the letter. It's beautifully laid out. And um, we've just connected with Assemblywoman Friedman. Thank you, Myla Reason, for getting her to do that. I talked to Laura Friedman this morning, and she's going to take a letter off of our letter and get legislators to sign that. So with our letter of 120 groups and counting and Laura's letter, getting legislators, and then as soon as the letters go out in the next day or two, we're then going to do calls just like what you were saying, Harvey, get people to make phone calls. Every single person call their legislator. And we want the tests during the window of the 50 days. It's really simple, but we'll be sending out a script in the next day or two. And that is our action. And then hopefully uh, some of these legislators may be able to get a press conference about this and get public attention. We're not saying shut it down, even though we want to shut it down. We're saying do the due diligence tests. And once they do the test, it will shut itself down. That's what we believe. We hope. Thank you for that, Jennifer. Uh, Jim, did you want to mention, by the way, is I, I may be able to get a uh, an hour for us on KPFK, uh, reviving our uh, Soratopia show. And I want to invite everybody back and we will do a Zoom that we will also send to the rest of the Pacifica network and, and put it out uh, wherever we possibly can. Um, uh, Jim Stewart, you're with us, but Carl... Carl Grossman had a hand real quick, and then uh, uh, Jim. So Jim, uh, Jim is following me, so could you just let Jim? All right, go ahead, Jim. And then okay, well, I just uh, wanted to say that it's been a pleasure to work with uh, Jennifer on uh, doing this letter. I just shared the link to our letter in the chat. Okay. And I will also share the link if you have a group that hasn't yet uh, joined the 120 people. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Much appreciated. I want to I want to mention Jim and Mary Beth, the great filmmakers are on. Jim, if, if you guys want to made sense, a more award-winning send off send home film, if you want to jump in, please raise your hand. Carl Grossman was one of the architects of the shutdown of the Shoreham reactor in uh, New York. Uh, Carl, in your sage advice, what do we need to do to keep uh, Diablo Canyon shut? Hold on, hold on. Go. Uh, I don't know, but I can tell you how because it wasn't just Shoreham. It was seven to eleven nuclear power plants that would be built on Long Island. Long Island was to be turned at that time. This is in the parlance of the nuclear promoters into a nuclear park. And what did it? And again, this might not apply too widely, but I think it applies. Is creation of a public power authority with the power of condemnation. Indeed, in the current issue of the Progressive Magazine, this is the November issue, headlined a power struggle, and they're talking about the Pine Street Tree State, Maine, and speaks about there's going to be a referendum in Maine for a public power entity. Public power offers cheaper, more reliable service. Public power, in connection then with condemnation, offers more than that. It can cause the blockage of nuclear power. How this idea was formulated in Long Island, it was an attorney, a prominent environmental attorney, Irving Like, who realized when the nuclear juggernaut took form in the 50s, the federal government preempted localities and states from all kind of authority. But Irv realized that condemnation power continued. 
And although there were all kinds of actions on Long Island, protests, one 15,000 people, um, 600 arrests, uh, evacuation as a big challenge that held things up for a couple of years. The NRC, after the TMI accident, required an evacuation plan to be implemented. Long Island and New York State said, impossible on this island with all these people to evacuate. In the end, that didn't work. Uh, uh, the White House created a, a private security operation out of the utility to run an evacuation. Uh, politics, grassroots uh, entities rose, uh, and with national entities, fought uh, nuclear power on Long Island. There was litigation, including a, a RICO lawsuit. Uh, media, as much as we could get it, considering with the New York Times, major newspaper, Newsday, pushing nuclear power. But what finally stopped the, pl the plan for 7 to 11 nuclear power plants and blocked the commercial operation of the first of the 7 to 11 Shoreham, which now sits along a Long Island Sound as a big cement hulk, was the creation of LIPA with condemnation power. The utility so fearful of being eliminated as it would have been, it ultimately went out of business in any case because of LIPA, just gave up and for a dollar turned Shoreham over to the state for uh, decommissioning as a nuclear power plant. And thus there's no nuclear power plants on Long Island today. Uh, again, this not might not apply all over, but one area to uh, to create a mechanism to see, because it's so hard to get something done in a state legislature or in the Congress so dominated by contributions from the, the nuclear industry. This mechanism, which was done on Long Island, I think could be very helpful. But just let me add one thing. Today in 2023, one has to deal very forcefully with the claim that climate change requires nuclear power as an antidote. Antidote, And people have to understand that the nuclear fuel cycle is highly carbon intensive and nuclear power plants themselves, emit, well, they emit carbon-14, radioactive carbon. Uh, just let me end with the whole story of that how Long, Long Island was, uh, nuclear power was blocked on Long Island was is in the book I wrote called Power Crazy, uh, published by Grove Press. You can get a used copy. It's all very detailed how it was done step by step. And in terms of the uh, the climate change stuff, I'm doing all I can now with my, my TV company uh, out of a nationally aired show uh, to uh, deal with the baloney that nuclear power is carbon free. You might want to go to envirovideo.com and see one of the shows I've done on this issue the hoax that nuclear power is green. Alec Baldwin is involved in it and others. Well, Carl's show is great. You've been doing it for a long time. Maybe you could do a show specifically on Diablo and embrittlement. And I think we also have to push now this connection to the military because uh, this stuff makes no sense in any sane and rational world. Um, the, the military has to be involved in, in keeping these plants going. I can't see any other explanation. Uh, Justin and then Mary Beth and Jim. Justin, very quickly. 
Uh, no, let me, I'm, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. So Rancho Seco in uh, Sacramento area was a nuclear yes. power plant that had to shut down because of cooling issues. That is something that's also in play with Diablo Canyon with its once through cooling system and uh, the rust that's been found all over it. Uh, now, the interesting thing is, I don't know that the municipal SMUD was responsible for that shutdown. Yes, it was. Okay. Um, so in San Luis Obispo, the referendum in 1989, where okay. they and it could have could not have had a referendum on a nuclear plant if the public didn't own it, and Rancho Seco was publicly owned because ah. of SMUD, and that's why we shut it. Yeah, so it's different, obviously, with Diablo and uh, something about the public power agencies in that area. Uh, there was a three-county alliance for public power, and the board was taken over much like the Pacifica board and bylaws rewritten to uh, probably in many ways to try to prevent shutdown of Diablo. So that's not a reliable avenue here. But uh, what is interesting to mention, based on what other callers have said, is that Diablo Canyon still is a liability for uh, grid reliability in California. There's a P minus one, N minus one standard that basically says the largest power plant is the one you have to plan for. And in these severe events, it's not hypothetical. In 2020, the blackouts that we faced weren't actually because we didn't have reserve. It's because PG&E was afraid we wouldn't have reserve if Diablo went down. So that's right, Diablo was the cause of the blackouts in that time. And it could be the cause of the blackouts in other cases because it requires hydropower to keep it from overloading the rails. And that hydropower could be used as a storage on demand system in the case of intensive power usage. So, okay, so, excellent. Uh, thank you for that. There are CCAs in the area and Carl raised the issue of public power. I don't know how the CCAs might play in to the um, dynamic, I'm sure you do. Uh, Linda, we're beyond the um, six o'clock hour. We have 44 people with us, but I want to keep going. Uh, uh, Wendy or Steve, if you can keep us going, up, we excellent. And I, I will want to do a separate um, uh, uh, Zoom just on Diablo in the future that we can put on the radio. Jim and Mary Beth, congratulations on your great film and your awards. And um, uh, fill us in. What's you got? What do you got to say? Um. Thank you so much for uh, inviting the folks from San Onofre uh, to compare notes with the people at Diablo. I think that's this has been such a rich discussion and also to hear from Carl and um, and what's happening in Ohio and Michigan. It's amazing. Um, I just wanted to say if the waste issue cuts across everything. And that's the focus of um, San Onofre syndrome. And uh, if you wanted to sign up on uh, to our newsletter, which you can do by going to sananofresyndrome.com, um, then we'll uh, have the latest screening opportunities and, and how to get a hold of that uh, film for anybody who would like to see it. It's a it's a great film and thank you very much and you know it does celebrate a victory, uh, shutting San San Onofre did not have to shut, they they you know they would have brought in paid the money and uh, if they got the federal money and and bought new uh, um, uh, 
Jerrens, whatever else they wanted, they would have ignored uh, the the leak. Uh, they would have done whatever they could have done or needed to do. But the you guys uh, conjured up the political power to stop them from doing it. So now we've got to do this at the Abel Canyon. Right. And, um, you know, uh, I know I we we need to find the key, Linda. There's some good ideas. Uh, we need to, of course, support the mothers. And um, um, I hope we figure out how to do this uh, but, uh, as soon as possible. We don't have any choice. Right. So what is the time frame now uh, on the reopening of Diablo? How, how much time do we have before Unit 1 is supposed to go back online? I think we have about um, six weeks. Really? All right. That's a little more than I thought we would. Six weeks is a lifetime. So yeah. one of the things I want to do is stage another Zoom. Um, let's bring in uh, Arnie Gunderson, uh, maybe Peter Bradford, uh, Dan Hirsch. Anybody else have a suggestion for the next um, uh, uh, Zoom call uh, that will be focused and we'll put it on the radio. Uh, we'll put it out on the Internet um, and we'll really build an audience for it. And make it useful to, and maybe we, what we should do is get Nato Khan. Yes, also, exactly, and also Torgan Johnston. And Torgan, well, Torgan's with us. I assume he'll come back. Uh, we have, and we also have Pat Morita to keep us uh, grounded in what's going on at Piketon. I think the argument that's being made that these are that the military is playing a role in keeping these reactors open has to be emphasized. I mean, uh, Tatanka has been pushing it for a while. But if you look from Pat's re reporting at what's going on in Ohio, they're pouring tons and tons of money into this old site and, and you know, with the enrichment and, uh, and, and plutonium. Uh, Rocky Flats, which used to do the plutonium, is shut. But, you know, they still got Ohio. Uh, Jim and Mary Beth, did you want to throw something in here? And, and, you know, excuse me, but it's also Los Alamos National Labs that's um, producing plutonium. Right. Los Alamos is still open, unfortunately. Uh, Jim, Mary Beth? I just wanted to mention um, Bruce Gagnon should be part of this conversation. He's the head of uh, Space for Peace. And that's where a lot of the focus from the military uh, is going with the nuclear, the use of nuclear. And uh, also, of course, to extract themselves from being dependent on the Russian um, and Kazakhstan suppliers of, of the US uh, uranium and, and plutonium and so on. So we that's that's what's going on in the background. And we um, so they're gearing up here to get back in the um, manufacturing game so that they can compete with Russia and China. Been, at this point, go ahead, Jim. We, we've been commenting in a number of previous articles on our, our blogs, which, is, which are, you can, you can find us on Substack Planetarian Perspectives and also on nonukesca.net. Uh, I particularly recommend uh, if this whole military connection is a new idea to you, I recommend our, our kind of comprehensive coverage we did in an article called We Are Armageddon Man. 
talking about the fact that the real nuclear triad is energy, weapons, and waste. Well, if you'll put the link to that in the chat, that would be really good. I think we should have Scott Denman on with us the next time. Kevin, come back, maybe Paul and Linda Gunter. We really need a summit here uh, to lay out our strategy for fighting the industry going forward, because we're really at a turning point here. I mean, no sane economist uh, without, without a, a dog in the, in the race here would ever support nuclear power in the current uh, economy. I mean, there was a, a giant article in the New York Times yesterday about the, I'm very, very, never mentioned the word nuclear. And the Times has been very nuclear for decades, pro-nuclear. And this is an incredibly um, um, supportive piece of the uh, tsunami of wind and solar that's going on worldwide. I mean, this technology is just uh, blowing it, literally blowing everybody away. It didn't mention it in this, well, the two other pieces, one was agrivoltaics. It was a great article in the Times on how compatible um, renewable solar panels are with agriculture. It's really interesting about, you know, growing crops under solar panels. The public vision is if you put solar panels on ag land, you lose the agriculture. It's absolutely not true. And, and especially with livestock. I mean, I'm a vegan, but, you know, um, uh, cows, sheep, uh, goats all can all like being under solar panels. And there are lots and lots of shade crops that do very well under solar panels. It's really interesting. They failed to mention um, uh, canals and, and um, um, uh, aqueducts. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that's another piece of it. So it's all out there. I don't see any other explanation for the push uh, for, for a nuclear uh, than the military. And the, the extrication or the upgrade at Piketon, and I guess at Los Alamos, I don't know what's going on at Los Alamos, but Pat gives us a good report on Piketon, is that they are obviously intending to take spent fuel from the, the ongoing reactors and do something for uh, the small reactors. Because right now we're dependent on Russia, and that, that's not going to last. Okay, um, we had uh, someone... Oh, um, um, who is next? There's someone next to their hand up. Sorry. Uh, uh, Steve? What's that? Okay. Kale Walker. Kale Walker. Go ahead, Kale. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I could say all sorts of things about all of this. Um, I just wanted to say the Adams for Peace strategy is now, I would say, Adams for climate. Because everything, they're, they're really promoting these SMRs for climate. And they're using very much the same playbook huge funding, huge propaganda to Congress. They're sinking all this huge funding into their inflation reduction uh, bill, all of this stuff, all uh, is hugely funding corporate, uh, pu public-private um, partnerships for a lot of these SMRs. So they're using that model also, which really, you know, muckies up the water in, on a certain level. But uh, the, the playbook and the the uh, getting into the universities to do pro nuclear for the for the students at, on all all grade levels. I've been watching that this last year or so, and it's unbelievable um, how everyone is just you know in positions of power. They're just accepting the the concept that that nuclear is required to fight con uh, 
climate change. And so everything that people have been saying here has not been getting out past the sound barrier <laughs> to regular people. And um, I missed a part, middle part of the meeting, but there was so much talk about Ohio at the beginning of the meeting. And that's really where the tip of the spear is for these new SMRs with the, with the new fuel. They want to put this super high burn up, high, high enriched fuel into the reactors, which is going to make all of the problems of the canisters and everything hugely worse. Um, I mean, they're just, they've got this train, they're ready to send down the track and it's, and it's completely, you know, out of control. The NRC's, you know, doing all of this. So that, that was just kind of a larger perspective, but I wanted to say like, there's several uh, power plants that are up for license renewal or extension. And I feel that in order to break the sound barrier behind the scenes, somehow people should be connecting with the people in Ohio who are working on Perry or the people who are in South Carolina working against Okani, whatever you call it, or VC Summer, all of these power plants, they're facing the same thing and they don't have as, as strong of a network of people as this group does, but the people who are we're looking at it are desperate for connecting, well, networking and stuff. So I just wanted to throw in a word for collaboration. One of the on reasons we, we, thank you, Kale. Thank you for that. And one of the reasons we have to, you mentioned exactly under um, under opposed reactors. Let's put it that way: is we have to have a very clear, definitive piece on on embrittlement, because all these old reactors are embrittled, and it is illegal. There is precedent. The NRC shut, kept, refused to allow the reopening of the Yankee Row plant in 1992 because of embrittlement, and and that's all we need. And so I think all these small uh, be, you know, besieged groups in remote areas need to have a definitive piece that's usable on embrittlement. So, Kale, thank you so much for that. Can, can I just add final? one other yeah. final thought? There was so much in the first hour. There was all these other issues, and people are working on all these other issues, and we need to cross-pollinate. So the people who are working on women's rights issues or the, you know, all of these, all of these different activist groups need to be clued in on this nuclear issue. It has become like you know, the, the thing to become anti-nuclear again. Now it's, it's become people, all the anti-nuclear activists of back in the day are kind of backed off and watered down their attitude and, oh, maybe it's okay. But I think that they need to get the memo and, and join, the, join, the, uh, join the fun. Okay, good. Thank you. And Kayla, are you on our list? I don't know if you're, are you getting uh, yes, it? Yes, I, I am. Yeah, I, I am. Okay, okay, good. Thank you very much. Myla, then Tatanka. And then um, we're getting close to 420, but I want to go over. Uh, I don't know, Steve. If Pat you can Morita has, hasn't spoken yet. Oh, I have. Oh, Pat, you have your hand. Um, uh, go ahead, Pat, please. And then, and then Myla, and then Tatanka. Can you keep us going, Steve or Wendy? Um, yeah. Okay, thanks. Uh, you can go out and toke up. It's 420, but uh, just leave the Zoom on. Uh, go ahead, uh, Pat, please, and then Myla and Tatanka. So the Portsmouth nuclear site is actually at Piketon, Ohio, and there they have these new plans and they're actually beginning to start enriching uranium using centrifuges. And they're going to enrich it uh, for, for reactors that aren't built yet. Uh, you know, uh, and it's gonna be called HALO, high assay, low enriched uranium. But it's really high enriched because at 20%, that is the, that is the NRC's definition of high enriched. So uh, what are they, 
saying they will enrich it to 19.75%, an impossibly precise figure. Um, and uh, they're actually licensed to enrich it to 25%. Uh, and why 19.75%? Well, uh, because at 20%, it cannot be exported. They want to export this stuff. They want to export these uh, small, so-called small, reactors uh, to uh, other countries where they can then uh, have uh, political clout in these countries, though these countries will be more or less uh, obligated to support the United States and its military and, and so forth. And at, at that enrichment, it's very easy to enrich it further to like 90% for, for weapons. So everyone across the country, there's just all kinds of, of uh, anti-nuclear experts saying that this is really the, uh, the military and civilian overlap here for sure. Wow, thank you for that, Pat. And thank you for being in Ohio to <laughs> scout that out for us. Uh, and there are, other, there are other military also with, with the depleted uranium. Now they're making the precursor uh, to use the depleted uranium at, uh, at, at the Portsmouth site in Piketon uh, for weapons. Yeah. Mara, go ahead. I wanted to clarify what I said about Los Alamos. Well, for years, Rocky Flats was the site where they fashioned the, uh, the triggers for thermonuclear bombs out of plutonium. They created plutonium triggers for the bombs. And uh, they were forced to shut down because they there was so much plutonium that had contaminated air ducts and various other parts of the facility that there were fires that, uh, that were just uh, uncontrollable. And so they shut Rocky Flats and had to find a new uh, facility to fashion these plutonium triggers. And, uh, and they decided uh, to do it at Los Alamos. So I misspoke. It's not the production of the plutonium that occurs at Los Alamos, but it's the fashioning the plutonium into, into triggers for nuclear bombs. And I, I actually marched at Rocky Flats and right next to Rocky Flats, uh, which is shut, is the National Renewable Energy Lab, which uh, National Renewable Energy Lab, where oh. they test windmills and solar panels. It's quite... Ironic. Uh, Tatanka, go ahead. Are you unmuted? Can we unmute Tatanka? Yeah, I, find, I, I finally got it, yeah. Okay. Um, just a logistical thing, Harvey. If possible, I'd like to meet with whomever you think is important. This is logistical, either tomorrow or the next day. It doesn't have to be a long meeting, but get some key people together to put out a timeline. And I think... Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Linda, but the uh, 50 days uh, Jennifer talked about, Jennifer Tanner is doing great work, uh, is is seven weeks, and you, you were estimated six weeks. It's not tied to a specific date they've said, right? We're, we're guessing? No. Yeah, we're guessing. They're not telling us anything. Okay. So I, yeah, I, so I think six weeks, we'd be prudent, we do six weeks, and Let's just get together. This has been so great today. A lot of great input, a lot of great people doing great work. So I don't want to lose the connections that can really help us move forward. So if that's possible, you don't have to decide that now, but so I'll go if we can get get something yeah. on Zoom. So I'm gonna, I want to pull together another, uh, another a two-hour session that we will Zoom 
uh, we'll record, we'll put it on online, we'll put it on the radio. It's got to be within 10 days or so. Uh, we'll get Peter Bradford and um, uh, uh, Greg Yasko if we can, and Nato Khan. If we can get Nato Khan, uh, that would be big, big. So maybe Jim, Mary Beth, Torgan, um, um, Adana, and uh, all three of all four of you need to move to San Luis Obispo. I'm sure that uh, uh, Linda can find you a cheap apartment. And, uh, you know, th th this has got to happen here. Um, uh, but I'm, in, I'm in Monterey now, so. Oh, you're not far. You're closer than you were. Yes. Uh -huh. All right. So, look, this has got to happen. Um, and um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll send out a, a memo. We'll send you the link to this call. Does anybody else have anything to add? On, I, on I just... If I might, just in terms of the time frame for the closure, it's my understanding, Celie, that they did shut on uh, October 1st for the refueling. That was a scheduled shutdown. And there were 12 items of deferred maintenance that they identified as having to be completed during the shutdown. 12 of 50 items of deferred maintenance because they... Uh, originally thought in 2016 when they signed the agreement to shut these two reactors, they thought, oh, we're not going to spend money. We're going to defer the maintenance because we're shutting those reactors in 2024 and 2025. So now all of a sudden they realize that in order to get an extension of the license from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that they are going to have to address the deferred maintenance. And 12 of those items of deferred maintenance have to take place while the unit one is shut. So it's not so much that there's a set time frame, but rather that they have to complete those 12 items of deferred maintenance. And then um, they've already removed a third of the fuel and then they have to load that fuel at the end after they've done all of the maintenance. And it's only before the fuel is reloaded that they will be able to undertake the, uh, to remove the coupon. Correct. And, um, and I, Celia, I think that you said that the ultrasound can be accomplished after the fuel is loaded? No. So those are the two things, the, the ultrasound testing and the removal of the coupon have to happen before they, uh, re, before they put in the new fuel. That's right. And <clears throat> using the methods that the NRC has approved for, for testing the coupon, it takes 18 months to get back the results. Um, and so part of the Mothers for Peace demand was that they not be allowed to start the reactor till we get the results back of the test, which makes sense, right? That is, they're probably not going to abide by that. Um, I'm but sure they're not going to. We should raise a stink about it anyway. But then the question is, what is the standard for embrittlement? And and will they will they stand by? In other words, if the coupon comes back with a certain reading, what is the threshold reading that that beyond which they allegedly can't operate? And are they just going to say, well, like they always do, we'll just change the fuck, <clears throat> we'll just change the regulation? Probably. And, yeah. and 
didn't you uh, tell me that you uh, that you contacted the uh, PG&E, I believe, yes. and asked them whether or not the coupon had been removed and yes. asked them whether they are, in fact, undertaking the ultrasound. And yes. so far, they haven't responded <laughs> to your query or no nothing. Mm -hmm. And also uh, one of our uh, local uh, rep state representatives has asked them to, and they, he has not gotten a response yet. Unbelievable. All right, well, listen, we're near the end here. Uh, Wendy, did you want to say something? It's almost 4.30. Uh, anybody else have to, something to say? Raise your hand. This has been I, I got to go lie down. <laughs> this has been a mind-boggling session, and we're going to have to keep at it now. You know, I just want to say that our next, the sequel to the San Onofre syndrome, we're already working on it, is uh, the Diablo Canyon syndrome, keeping old rickety nukes going beyond their time. I hope, well, I hope that won't take another 12 yeah. years. So. Right, yeah, really. exactly, my <laughs> It's got it's got to happen soon, and it's got to be the military, and oh. it, especially when you when you put in all the information from what they're doing in Ohio. Oh, yeah. uh, it's the only me uh, explanation that makes any sense, as far as I can tell. Already, there, one, there part, is, one part business, one part war. That's what that's the yeah. formula. Right. Thank you. Uh, right before. Uh... Oh wait, let Wendy speak. Then okay. to talk, and then Carl. Carl Grossman okay. wants to speak as well. Go ahead, Wendy. Thank, thank you very quickly. And um, yeah, if you look through the the current defense budget that was just passed, there's tons of hidden money for nuclear space nukes. I mean, all kinds and certain levels of depleted uranium that needs to be supplied from the DOE to the DOJ, which is crossing bounds that haven't happened for a really long time. Um, I I had an idea and and I also want to just um thank Linda Seely so much. I want to thank all of you guys, but Linda Seely always comes on and just has such bright energy. And I know it's just like so dark with the the world that you guys are fighting. And I just want to thank all of you and send so much love. My idea, um, there was a re I'll see if I can find it before the end of the show. Otherwise, I'll I'll try to pass it along. There was a statement put out by someone in the UN that was just talking about how the the small reactors are just not the way to go for like there's nowhere to really secure the waste all the reasons that we already know so I'm just wondering like is anybody in contact with the UN and any of the departments in the UN like any kind of like related thing like whether it's human rights because we have a certain right to not be exposed to these dangers and etc but maybe get the international community to start working together yeah on debunking the whole Adams for Peace malarkey right. and and thank you. Well, I, ironically, and people need to remember this, um, the main reason, and given the context here, the main reason Germany was able to shut their reactors is they don't have a nuclear weapons program. Germany does not produce nuclear weapons and France does. And, and you know, so you have the French guy, Macron, saying how, the nuclear weapons and nuclear power industries are joined at the hip, and you have the Germany with no nuclear power or nuclear weapons. So, you know, <laughs> duh, what else is going on? Uh, Carl Grossman, go ahead, please. Just want to say quickly, in terms of reason, nuclear power and nuclear weapons, two sides of the same coin. But in my work over the decades, what I've found is that vested interest and greed is critical. And not, not to probe I write extensively, and it, 
on TV and presented stuff on TV, how at the end of the Manhattan Project, the the engineers and the scientists, what are we going to do next? The the major contractors, Westinghouse and GE, uh, how are we going to, so you can continue to build bombs, and they did 30,000, and then the super under Edward Teller. But what else could you do with nuclear technology to keep our jobs, to keep our contracts and so forth? So this string of national nuclear laboratories was set up. I mean, here in Long Island, we're very close to it because Brookhaven National Laboratory was set up on Long Island in 1947 to develop nuclear technology, civilian nuclear technology. And who was the longtime head of the utility on Long Island pushing nuclear? A guy named William Catacasinos, former assistant director at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Uh, so that um, uh, that gathering of, uh, of people and corporations and government agencies. I mean, here, Manhattan Project became the Atomic Energy Commission in 1947. That that juggernaut, that juggernaut, then and now, is very much involved in pushing, pushing, pushing. Again, for vested interest, for greed. And I've spoken on nuclear, I've been to Russia seven times, talking on nuclear technology. And there, with all due respect to the left, you can't blame capitalism for the development. It it was a letter in 1945 from a Russian physicist to Stalin, which really kicks off their nuclear program, which ends up uh, weapons like ours and nuclear power. So it has to do I can, more than anything else. I feel though the military is is, is uh, connection is critical. Vested interest, vested interest. Right. Thank you, Carl. Tatanka, you want to wrap? Is there anyone else? Yeah, I don't know where to place this in the order of things. Uh, we've got to take care of this nuclear weapon, but we need to get ourselves educated on everything that's been going on in the last few decades up into space. And uh, I know a couple of authors, you know, Alana Freeland, who, you know, I heard her speak twice. Uh, she follows all the military trade shows, right? Under an Ionized Sky is a classic. And she's got probably three or four books out after that, as far as I know. But she knows as much about what goes on in space and, as anything. And so if we can familiarize ourselves with what, what's actually happening that we don't know as it relates to energy and specifically nuclear energy, it's going to just make it easier for us. All right. So listen, excellent. So the next step is to have a major two hour zoom. If we can get Nato Khan, uh, that would be a big, big plus. There are mailing lists that we can get access to, to make it a big deal. And uh, we'll have, a, a, Linda, you need to talk to me about our Thursday meeting. We need to, to make this happen. Um, we cannot let this reactor reopen. You're and, right. Carl so, had one more thing to add. I don't know if he's- Go ahead. Uh, just with nukes in space, I broke the story in the Nation magazine how the next mission of the Challenger had aborted a plutonium-fueled space probe. So if the accident would have occurred a few months after it happened, and then I got deeply into this issue. Uh, I wrote a book called The Wrong Stuff. Uh, I also wrote, wrote a book, Michio Kako did the introduction, Weapons in Space. This is my last point about how Star Wars was predicated, and this was not made clear at the time, on battle platforms with hypervelocity guns, particle beams, and laser weapons needing all kind of energy 
And what was to be on those the battle platforms? This is in windmills. weapons space. They were going to use windmills. With, with, were super plutonium system and actual reactors. So the move up to space, in fact, at, at Brookhaven Lab, they did these this work in the 50s, in the late 40s. I mean, not just the food irradiation, not just nuclear-powered cars and trains, but also nuclear-powered rockets and so forth. It's it, it's a huge, monstrous threat to, to life. Well, you and Tatanka, you and Tatanka should talk. Uh, Carl, Carl's a great expert on this. You guys should get get your heads together on this one. Anybody? Thank you, Carl, for that. Anybody else want to jump in here before we go? I just want to reemphasize about Bruce Gagnon. We've been talking about networking and connecting. He's got he's the head of a huge international network that's very committed and very involved. Well, he should be in touch with Carl and Tatanka here. Uh, yeah, a great triumvirate. Yeah, and, and, and the name is the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. And yeah. I helped form that in 1992. For many years, I was the convener. And, and Bruce is uh, right there on the connection between weapons and nukes in space. Exactly. All right, well, and coming down, let's do on planet Earth here. We just got to get the apple shut. Uh, so I'll, I'll start to pull this together. People have uh, people they want to include. Email me, solartopia at gmail. We still have 36 people on the call. Uh, does anybody else want to chime in before we go? No, I'll, I'm game. I'll get their numbers from you, and yeah. we'll we'll get together. Okay. okay, Wendy, thank you for be careful out there gathering signatures. For God's sakes, that was a, a mind boggling report, and um, another two and a half hours. Well, couldn't be better. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Steve and Mike, for keeping us going. And Wendy, for your reportage. Melinda, um, I, I think you got to get make spare room there for Donna and uh, and Torgan and, and and get Jim and Mary Beth. Are, uh, guys, are you going up to, to if you're going up to Bellinis, you need to stop in San Luis Obispo. Oh, and, we're already planning on it. We're going to interview okay. 